Yeah, and and often it's not even intentional. Right? Yeah. This just kind of like sneaks in. When America makes a game about war, it's about winning wars. <laughs> Poland makes De- a game about. I war. definitely never looked at that perspective, but yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to independent game developer Rami Ishmael of Lambeer, best known for his work on Super Crate Box, Ridiculous Fishing, Luftrausers, and Nuclear Throne. really happy at the IGFs yesterday mm-hmm. that yeah, saw won an award yeah. and actually said a lot of into a microphone I was like oh, that went pretty fast because <laughs> last year I won an award and I started my talk with Salaam Alaikum yeah and it was the first Arabic phrase ever uttered on the stage. But to go from Salaamu Alaikum to Allahu Akbar was yeah, a pretty, like, that was yeah. a like, okay. Yeah, well, you gotta reclaim like, that. Right, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I can't wait until next year there's a Muslim stage. It's just full of fatha. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm very excited. All right, so um, where I uh, usually like to start, and I'm especially interested about this for you, like, what's the, uh, what's the first video game experience you remember? Oh God, that was in 1993, I was very young, I was five or six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad got a computer from work, okay. and that was, um, it was an IBM 386 okay. with uh, MS-DOS. And would this be in the Netherlands? This would be in the Netherlands, okay. yeah, I grew up in the Netherlands. Um, and um, on that computer was... Uh, this graphical user interface that was meant to, to help my dad navigate a computer because he's he's Egyptian, mm-hmm. uh, he moved to the Netherlands, he's, his Dutch was good, but right. uh, computers were complicated and right. Dutch was complicated. So yeah. they, they had this graphical user interface that would allow him to, to easily navigate that. And the engineer was supposed to take out a quit to DOS option so okay. my dad could never end in DOS. Okay. He forgot to do that. Okay. And me being curious, I obviously right. ended up in DOS. And... Uh, through trial and error, I just found a bunch of stuff. Like it, it, when you think about it, it it's actually uh, kind of miraculous because uh, I spoke Dutch. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't speak any English. So okay. for me, something like CD for change directory right. didn't make sense, that? or sure. dear for directory didn't make sense. The okay. only thing that made sense, I guess, in hindsight, think about it, was help. In Dutch, okay. it's the same word as in English. Oh, so you typed in help, and that's how you found all. And the then stuff. I found, but I couldn't read the description. So, so you just... I must have just tried things, <laughs> right? This actually looks like a pretty interesting game. Yeah, it must have been pretty interesting. How do you navigate? And you didn't even necessarily understand the idea of of a folder directory to begin with. No. So it was just like trying things (laughs) and then getting different things on the screen until I found uh, QBasic. Okay. And I ended up loading up uh, something called Gorillas, which was a tutorial file that came with QBasic. Okay. And it was, um, if you remember that, like, tank game where you had to, like, set an angle and a velocity. Is it like an artillery game? Yeah, it was an artillery-style game. Uh, but with two gorillas on okay. skyscrapers. Okay. And uh, that was my first game. And ironically, it was also my first mod. Oh, because excellent. Wow, you started early then. After a few, uh, after a few weeks of playing that against my brother, I, I realized that I had to load this text onto my screen that I couldn't read. Uh-huh. Um, and I started just kind of going through it and then realized that the main menu text mm-hmm. was in that file. Right. Uh, so I changed that text to my name. Okay. And then the next time I booted up the game, it, it said Rami right, instead right. of uh, Gorillas. Right. 
so at that point, I guess I realized that if you change words, you could change games. Yep. And uh, that that never stopped. So right. It, I've always been in a weird spot where I, I feel more of a developer than a than a player because I think every game I've played in my life, I've wondered how to break it. How to break it, right? I broke a lot of them. My dad had like stacks of floppy drives with okay. like reinstallations of MS DOS and like oh, no. images because I just kept I <laughs> kept, kept breaking stuff. the computer yeah. like. What is auto exec dot bat? And it's uh, like it turns out if you delete that file, your computer just doesn't work. It's like yeah. okay. Um, so yeah, my first my first games experience is also my first modding experience, and right. uh, it's kind of where everything started. Okay, um, cool. So did you uh, what? Presumably, then at some point you started getting into like commercial games, and like you started discovering them, or like how yeah. did, what did you what did, what were you into? I uh, I started with um, Grand Prix Circuit. Uh, which you booted up by typing GP Ega because okay. it was like an EGA game. Uh, it was a it was a car racing game and it was it was 3D but sort of like sprited 3D that was yep. very popular back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, uh, Transport Tycoon okay. was yeah. a huge inspiration uh, and and a game that uh, as a kid I just remember playing like infinitely. What did you like about that game? I think what I liked about it is uh, a lot of it felt very. Uh, it was a very expressive game, right? Like it was a it was a tycoon game, but you built a road, you built railroads, you built uh, airports, and a lot of it was just sort of like the fantasy of like sculpting life. Right. Uh, the Netherlands is a very organized country, mm. um, and I think the Dutch sort of automatically start start to want organization around them. Right. Uh, I think I was very similar to that. I always wanted the roads to be as straight as possible and the rails to be as efficient as possible. Would <laughs> uh, you, like, destroy stuff many times over to try to get it exactly right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would, like, bulldoze, like, half a city to get the rail track, like, straight through it, and then I'd have to, like, bribe the mayor or something. Yeah. And, like, the game allowed that. Yeah, there's always a funny disconnect about those games where it's, like... You know, you're building the city, but like anytime you want to just completely bulldoze a block, it's totally fine. Yeah, it'd be interesting to make a city simulator where you're like you have that issue of like if you actually want to change something, you're gonna to have to get. It's gonna be hard. You're gonna have to get a vote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're gonna to have to talk to the people and like. Yeah, um, they have like a mechanic where you have to like get approval from a city, but you can like okay. build a statue, and that would like do it. Right? Okay. <laughs> uh, like, okay. Or like build an airport right outside of the city. Like you must uh, be a good guy. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I remember playing that a lot. Uh, also against my brother. It was this incredible mechanic where building tunnels was very expensive, but also destroying tunnels was very expensive, mm-hmm. and you couldn't cross another player's real track. So my, we, me and my brother would t- play against each other, and if we saw that the other player was building a tunnel, would immediately build a piece of rail in front of the exit, so right. they couldn't use the tunnel anymore, and then okay. it was just like a lost investment, right. uh, because you couldn't get money back. Um, Starcraft was my first map map editor as well. Okay. Uh, like, strategy games were a big thing. That's funny. You, may, you like you say Starcraft, and then the next word out of my mouth was map editor. Yeah. Uh, Star, <laughs> Starcraft so. map editor is just, it was it was such an incredible tool. Okay. I mean, uh, did you like the game? I love the game. I love okay. the game, but I, so the Starcraft map editor was, was big for me. I, I like the I liked the game, but I think more more than that, I, again, like, I like the, the, the expression uh, that was, was cable in it. Again, a game that I played a lot against my brother, right. uh, my younger brother. And, and sort of like the, the joke between me and my younger brother was that I would always teach him games because I was always a little head in like English mm-hmm. and like understanding like game mechanics. But he would always like destroy me within like oh, really? two, three weeks. So okay. I would teach him and then he would beat me and then I would find a new game. <laughs> um, right. But then it's like this. What like, would you. So the, when you'd use the start. When, uh, 
So StarCraft Map Editor, like, what would you do with it? Like, what, I, what did you I tried to make RPGs. Okay. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to make, like, these big stories. I made, I made this map that uh, I looked up recently, and it's surprisingly a Dota map. It's, like, really? three lanes. Like, it goes to the corners. Yeah, I was about to say that. You're, you sound like you're the type of guy who would have ended up with Dota in a different era. Yeah, right? yeah. Like I, so that's the, I, I actually ended up with a very Dota-like map. It was called Horizons. What's the... I yeah. mean, that's interesting. So, yeah. like, can you describe... Like how it worked? What was yeah, so it, you, you, you picked... Um, it, was, it was inspired by this idea that one player would play it as a strategy game and three players would play it as an RPG. Oh. So it was four versus four. And then, four versus four? Yeah. Wait, it, one player is a strategy game? Yeah, and then three players? three players were heroes. So it's one versus three. No, no. So it's two teams. Oh, yeah, each, so each, each one team had, had one, a strategy one, guy. Yeah, strategy person. And then... Three players that would play as heroes, right? And then those heroes would go through the map, mm-hmm. uh, doing objectives and like little like mini quests, effectively right. that would upgrade their character, and then they could evolve their character, right? And so then, that's like the Dota, like that's like you're linked, you're stuck with that character, when yeah. You're playing in that mode, yeah. So the map editor lets you do that, yeah. The map editor was extremely versatile. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, what it would do is uh, you had a lot of triggers and a lot of like weird little tricks that you could use to like keep track of resources right like obviously you have your two main resources so if you just said like minerals are experience right you say if player hits 2000 minerals then give them one vast uh, vespine gas and then that was just your level right sure so you could kind of like play with stuff like that there were a lot of like text triggers um that you could use so you just like make these little like things and and I mean, the balance was bad, right? right? Like, I never got the balance right. Um, but would you be able... I mean, did you play it? Were you able to play it once? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got, like, like a you, little community around it. Like, you like, need, like, eight people, right? Yep. So that... Like, how did you get eight people to play? I mean, I started with just, like, well, a little bit at school, uh-huh. uh, playing with friends at school, and then, like, trying to make it better, and then... Uh, I mean, for eight people, though, like, would they literally need to get eight computers together? Or would you yeah, I mean, online? we just did it in, in class. Oh, right? Like, okay. I take class. Like, we just sit in back and, like, play games. Okay, uh, all right. This is starting to make sense now. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and then eventually it, it we would get just, like, randoms drop into a map who were just curious. Like, StarCraft had such an interesting... People would just uh, find it randomly online? Yeah, so one of the things you would do, you would just host a game. Okay, right? sure. Right. And then, uh, That's how Dota spread. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, how Dota spread itself. Yeah, it's um, an amazing decision on their part. Yeah. Like, so we, we had, like, at, at the height of it, there were, like, two, three hundred people playing it, which was huge, right, for a kid sure. who was not commercially making games. Yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, it was, it was great. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the funnest decisions in that game was that the strategic player had a unit, uh-huh. and that unit could also evolve and upgrade. Right. But if that unit got killed, the game was over. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. kind of like the... So it was like king, the king yeah. in chess, right? Okay. Um, and what would the strategic player do? Like, outside? Anyway, so... so yeah, so mostly they could they could set objectives for other players and like ping the map, uh-huh. so they could like show players where to go or what to do, um, which was a lot of work. I remember that being the hardest thing to program. Uh, sure, but the, the, their main role was they could spend uh, money. Okay, so they could spend money on buildings that would then allow the other characters to like upgrade or get like higher attack or damage or defense. So they were sort of like the heart of the operation, and right. they would like sort of lead the heroes around. The heroes could listen or not listen. So sure, we got a we got a good community of people that would be really upset if their like lead would be bad at it. Sure, uh, which uh, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, I've always been really interested in the idea of like multiplayer games that have very asymmetrical roles, like yeah. way beyond like you know team four or whatever. And, yeah. Like, there have been a few games that have experimented with this idea, and like it doesn't seem like anyone's really totally nailed it. The 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 best I remember was a game called uh, Savage. Battle for New Earth or something, uh-huh. 
It was a very interesting game. It had, it had a similar structure with like one strategic player and the other players were heroes. Yeah. Um, and it's similarly, like the, the heroes would go out, cause trouble, gain resources, and yeah. then the strategic player would like yeah. hand out those resources. Tribes obviously took a little bit of a dig at it. Right. There's like Battlefield games have done stuff kind of like yeah, this. Yeah, right? they kind of play with it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, if I was going down this road, I would really try like making it completely asymmetrical, where it's like, like four guy, four characters or whatever. Yeah. Versus like one player who's playing a strategic game. That would be very interesting. I mean, in VR, we're seeing a lot of this asymmetry, right? Because it's it's relatively easy to set up a game where one player is in VR. Right. And the other four players are watching a TV with controllers. Oh, sure, yeah. And and you're seeing that asymmetrical gameplay like come back in VR now, which is actually interesting. I think the largest problem has always been interface. And sure. <clears throat> I think the Wii U had a genuine crack at doing it, but yeah. they just never did. Yeah. Well, they... I mean, we've played Nintendo Land tons of times, mm-hmm. like with with uh, my wife and our kids, because like because it actually did that super well, but like no other games did, like yeah. the Mario Chase game, right? Where like essentially one person is yeah. Pac Man, everyone else is the ghost, essentially, right? Like it's totally that, and uh, and I was like, oh man, this is amazing! I can't yeah. wait to see what other people do with it. But like, <laughs> it's it's interesting. I, I I love that VR is kind of pulling that thread though, because it is a very interesting one, and it's kind of a shame that it's never been properly explored. Yeah. Um, I can't. I, I can't wait to see more people play with that. Though it's it's clearly an idea that I've had since I was young, right? Sure. Uh, so I've always been fascinated by the idea. I just yeah. it's a tough thing because uh, I mean I kind of guessing you like to stay at a small scale. Is that you have ideas? You might have ideas like that, but they may be outside the like. Yeah, you know, like the the type of team you want, the side, the team size you want to actually work with. Yeah, I mean, Flambeer, uh, you know, my studio is, is two people at, at right. its heart, and uh, with freelancers we scale up sometimes to like eight to ten, fifteen right. people. But um, yeah, at the heart of Flambeer is this idea that JW, my, my co-founder, and I yep. were both relatively experimental designers. Yeah, and what we like doing is. We like subversion on existing genres. We like poking at things. And it's interesting, you know, traveling the world the last few years, I've, I've really learned that every country sort of has a fingerprint, a cultural fingerprint to, to uh-huh. how their games turn out. Yeah. And the Dutch fingerprint is very much Dutch design. It's like sort of okay. um, irreverent towards the media. It's in... It's critical. It's it's self, self-critical, even a little self-deprecating at times. Right. Uh, it's minimalist. Yeah. Um, okay, I can see that in your games. Yeah, it's very much that, and I, I never realized that until somebody pointed out, like, "Oh yeah, your games are very Dutch designed." I'm like, "They're what?" <laughs> um, yeah, but it's an invisible fingerprint. You don't know you put that on there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think for that type of studio, just small yeah. works better. Uh, I think it's wonderful, like you can see when games are at the point where you have a sense of where they're from, right? Like, I mean, that's the whole point. You know, if games are communication, they should feel like you know Japanese yeah. games feel a certain way. Eastern European Russian games, they certainly feel a certain way, yep. right? You know, British games have this quirkiness yeah. to them yep. that you don't see. Uh, South elsewhere. African, yep. Iranian, like Uruguay, and like there's, 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 sometimes they're very subtle differences, but I've, I, you know, over the years I've, I've learned to spot them relatively well, and it's just, it's kind of fascinating. Like, the hope is obviously that you wouldn't feel the difference like that viscerally, and it would be more of a, more of like a subtle thing because right. play in itself is global right sure. like we all play so no, it's like food right yeah but like 
you know, no one wants all the countries to have the same food. That would <laughs> that would be that would suck. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially with the Dutch kitchen, we have a very bad kitchen. Like, not even kidding. <laughs> okay. I'm very I'm very happy with the Netherlands, but we we are bad at food. <laughs> okay. We're good at pastries, good at waffles, but that's sure. it. It doesn't help if you have very good food where you come or where you yeah, know, right? yeah. Egypt is just Egypt has an incredible kitchen. Yeah, kosheri. We have you have incredible food throughout. Like basically the entire like Pan Arabian like sure. area has yeah. incredible food. The Dutch have their their most their most iconic food is called stumpelt. Okay, and it's, bas- it's basically just like. We throw a bunch of potatoes, vegetables, and a bunch of other stuff together and just and mash it. Okay. It, it literally means mash the bowl. Mash the bowl. Okay. And we just kind of like mash it until it's like green-yellow, and then right. we throw like a sausage on top of it, and right. that's it. All right, that's, we're done. That's, that's the meal. Okay. We, we did it. Here's, here's a whole cuisine. Like, this is it. Yeah, I, I have to say, I guess I can't think of any Dutch food. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> oh, like, please don't. Okay. Uh, right. Can't eat the tulips. So. Yeah, yeah, our deep fried stuff is really good. We deep fry everything. It's really weird. Yeah. But, oh. uh, that's about it. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So, that, uh, well, it's just really cool to hear how much the like the StarCraft map editor work for you, right? Yeah. Like it obviously like unlocked your creativity and Yeah, I mean it was it was just there were there were so many things pushing towards messing with games back then, yeah. right? Like games came with map editors, but also like all their data files would just be plain text. Sure. Yeah. Right? It was this game called Urban Assault, uh-huh. which was a Microsoft game made by Terratools, okay. which was like a German studio that no longer exists. Uh-huh. I don't think anybody ever played that game. I think I've, either I dreamt it or it's like nobody seems to recall okay. Urban Assault. I've got a couple of games like that in my past where like, I, I really feel like I'm the only person <laughs> yeah. who played them and I'll never be able to talk to them about it. Yeah. And I don't even remember the name. So it's like, it's sometimes like, did, did that, was this just a fever dream? You know? <laughs> like, was this real? But anyway, go ahead. Anyway, Urban Assault was a, it was a strategy game. And um, and sort of the trick of it, there were two tricks to it that I think still think are incredibly clever. Um, similarly to to the StarCraft map, you had like a host unit. Okay. It was this sort of like base station, were these giant flying fortresses, and um, you had one resources. Uh, you had one resource, electricity, and you spread that across different things. So the electricity was the health of your host station. Okay. But it was also your building power for your units. Okay. It was also your ability to teleport okay. as, a, as a host station. So they really like had this one super powerful currency. And the, and the fun thing is it would balance out uh-huh. to the average. Okay. So you would have an amount of electricity, but if you would spend all of it on, on hosting, um, on creating units, your average would start going down. Mm. And if your average was lower than other values, they would start dropping as well. So you could freeze certain values okay. and then they wouldn't drop. Mm-hmm. But they also wouldn't rise up again until right. the average caught back up, right? Um, so it was this very interesting like dance with numbers uh, that you were sort of like doing. And then the other thing was, uh, any unit that you built, you could uh, control. Okay. So you could just hop into an airplane or hop into a tank or hop, hop into a helicopter and sort of like explore the map as that. Uh-huh. And, and the unit you control would be stronger than right. it would get a buff. Uh, and I just remember, like, I love the game. I got it on, like, a demo disc. Right. Right? Okay. Uh, you got, like, these demo discs yeah. back in the days with, like, magazines with, like, 20, 20 games on it or something. Yeah. And, um... I mean, there's probably even some of those demos, like, for games that never even came out, you know? Yeah, like, maybe, maybe Really super weird, weird stuff. Maybe that's why... That's <laughs> no one's heard of it. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, the, the, the thing that uh, stood out to me is, like, there were three maps uh-huh. in the demo. 
But then there were three extra map files, uh-huh. and I figured out how to like oh yeah yeah rename the files so that yep. the game like loaded the wrong map. Yep. Uh, and then I realized that I could do that, so I started modifying other files, right? Yeah. And I modified like some some unit files until I realized that okay, this number is the speed. Yep. Of the unit. So I made a tank that just like zipped around the level like really fast and yep. then, like the turning circle and like the the shooting speed and like that. Yep. So I started like creating my own units and like yep. just working with that. And then eventually I figured out how the 3D models were like loaded and learned how to 3D model a bit and like. You so, would build your own models. Then. Yeah, I ended up building my own models. How would you build them? So there was this this weird little tool that like did really simple geometric like three D shapes. Okay. And the files were they were named like really weird. The extension was really weird, but they were effectively just like base three like they were like FBX files or whatever they were like very basic. Okay. Like three D models with like only geometry and like two materials or something. Okay. So you found an editor that spit out the same type of file for It was just the most used? default. It was like the most standard 3D okay. file at the time. I forgot okay. what that was. I see. Okay. It was like I didn't know whether free 3D sorry. I don't know whether 3D files were like standardized back then or not. I don't th- I don't think they were super standardized, but you could pretty easily figure out like because I think at the start it would say what the file what the actual file was, was right? Okay. In just plain text. And then it was just like numbers and like weird symbols. Yep. Uh, so I just, I, I guess I must have just like Alta Vista. Okay. Right, like that. And <laughs> just found this? like an editor that yep. spit out that file. Okay, cool. Uh, so that was cool. Um, I like obviously got the skill wrong, got like every, like did yeah, everything wrong. Like things. the first thing I loaded in was yep. like huge. Uh, and I mean, it would crash if it went to cockpit view because I never made a cockpit for it yep. or like stuff like that. Um, so there was clearly stuff missing, but I just I thought it was cool that I could make a dinosaur, like yeah, 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 put it in the sci-fi game. Wow! So were you like you were like a teenager? Yeah, this was like I must have been like eleven, twelve. Oh, yeah, still pretty young. Uh, did your parents notice like your creativity here? Like, uh, they, no, my parents they... just thought I was playing a lot of video games. Okay, uh, I, I grew up in a, in a bicultural family, so my mom is Dutch, my dad's okay. Egyptian, and, okay. and for my dad, it was always sort of terrifying how much it was on my computer because. Uh, you know, in an Egyptian sort of like, you know, family growing up as a boy, you, you basically could choose between like being a, a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, or like yeah. a disgrace to the family. That's kind of like your your four like career paths in life. And um, <laughs> like, the, like, yeah. like you had the fourth option, yeah, disgraced your family. Yeah. So I um, I ended up being uh, I ended up like I ended up convincing my dad that that was an engineering job. Right? Okay, like, sure. It's, it's kinda... At first, he was just terrified yeah. that I was going into like this, just playing video games. I like, get a real job. You're like, smart. Go work for NASA. I'm like, but right. Dad, NASA's in America. <laughs> like, I'm like there's no NASA in Europe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I did that for a long time, and then uh, my mom, being very Dutch, she's just like, Rami, do whatever makes you happy, right? Like right. we have good social welfare in the Netherlands, we yeah, have cheap yeah. healthcare, cheap education. Yeah, so that's having that type of marriage is you're gonna have a severe philosophical difference there. Oh yeah, I can yeah, totally see that. I mean, there were differences in everything, right? If sure. my if my mom would make dinner, you had to finish your plate. If okay. my dad would make dinner, if you finished your plate, he threw new food on your plate <laughs> until you didn't finish your plate. So like even like. Doing stuff like that is like it was just so it's so like built into how I've learned yeah, to yeah. understand the world. Yeah, like, for the for the listeners, understanding my wife is Lebanese and I'm American and I've experienced basically the, yeah. exact, the exact same thing <laughs> from my parents. From, yeah. her, from her yeah. from her parents. Yeah. In our household, you finish dinner, you finish yeah, yeah, dinner. Yeah. Yeah. We don't add. 
and you can be whomever you want to be in the future. <laughs> and we recommend probably not a doctor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she told me the exact same thing. Yeah, like grew yeah. up in Lebanon, you got to be a doctor, a lawyer, or architect. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. Engineer. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exact same thing. So and uh, yeah, no, the, the thing with food was funny because like. You know, when when I would visit friends, I would always leave food on the plate when I was full because, like, I don't want more. If I finish yeah. this plate, I'm going to get more. And people were like, did you like that? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I loved it. It was, it was great. great. Like, you you no, know, she didn't finish her plate. I'm like, oh, no, no, I was, I was full. I was full. Like, right. Do you want to tell him what word you know in Arabic, Sorn? Me? Oh, halas. Halas. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> Stop it. Halas. Uh, yeah, enough. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah, yeah. I've always, I've always been, been taught that if you, if you want to speak enough Arabic to, to make it through an average day, you need to know inshallah, which means like hopefully, but also means no, but also means yes. Oh, it's sort of like, it's, yeah. it's yes, meant. Yes, perhaps, maybe. Yeah, yes, perhaps, <laughs> but probably not. But it could be yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say no. Yeah, say yeah, it's, yeah. it's a polite no, but <laughs> also like hopefully yes. So it's an ambiguous maybe. Uh, bukra. Bukhra, which means yeah. tomorrow, yep. which but if you don't, soon. yeah, and soon. So, uh, Habibi. Habibi is a Habibi good term. Yeah, everybody. yep, everybody's Habibi. But that's different per Arab country. Yeah. Like some countries are very like selective with who you call Habibi. Yeah, sure. And some countries are like everybody's Habibi. Yeah, yeah. Like no, darling. Uh, yalla, yalla is very good, and uh, malish is a very good word, which is too bad. Mm. Uh, it's like when something doesn't yep. go right, yep. you say malish. If you know, like, sort of, like, that selection of words, yep. you'll generally be fine. <laughs> so, and yeah, khalas, very good. Khalas, very good. Which one? Tayyib. Tayyib, yeah, 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 yeah. Also a very good word. Uh, it's, it's an interesting, it's just funny, like, growing up between those two cultures and seeing the way my parents supported me. Yeah. You doing that both? Like, my mom was always super behind what I did, and my yeah. dad was always very critical of it, but... He was critical because he, he needed to, me to prove that I could sustain myself, there, right? right? Like that there was a future there. So when, um, so A, I had no role models in the games industry. Sure. There were no Arabs in the games industry that I could look up to. Um, so I had nobody to, to prove to my dad that this was a thing, right? Like yeah. to him, this was just like kids playing games and did every... Have, did every, it have to be an Arab? I mean, like some people also, I'll say, like, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people and growing up, it wasn't just even like a cultural thing it was like they're like games come from like they fell out of heaven yeah they fell out of heaven yeah, like, like no beautiful. one makes these games yeah, right no, they no, have like no happen. idea what to do yeah so, so anyway go ahead so I, I had no but like I, I I realized that there was an industry yeah and I came across all these names right yep. like uh, so Chris like John Carmack era yeah like Sire was like a cheat and Rollercoaster Tycoon yep, yep. or like you know so I started learning that there were these names that would keep coming back yep. uh, so there must have been people yeah right? like there must have been people that worked on these games but all of them have like names like John, yes. and like Chris, and like <laughs> Dan, and then, like there's no like Rami, no or, Rami, like, yeah, yeah, Ahmed, or like right. there was no, there was nobody, yeah, and they were all dudes. But like, it's, sure. like it was, it was all just sort of like the same kind of person. Yeah, like English name sounds like they're like a villain in like <laughs> some sort of like children's book. <laughs> Uh, where you go like to the cabinet and there's a fancy world, but like Dan at home is like really like he's not okay with the cabinet. Um, and like, it was just kind of that. It, it didn't feel like a thing that I could do. Sure. Uh, and for my dad, right. it didn't feel like a thing I could do. Yeah. So he was always like very critical about it. Um, he kind of stayed that way for a very long time. Uh, my mom was always super supportive. My dad, um, the last year, uh, I won the GDC Ambassador Award mm-hmm. for my work in emerging territories. Right. And I actually flew my family to, to San Francisco oh, to, to be there. 
And uh, I remember my dad sat all the way at the front at the GDC stage. And at some point, he just looked around and he's like, are all these people here for you? I'm like, no doubt, they're here for the awards. <laughs> like, there's, like, there's like dozens of awards, yeah. there's like thousands of people, but they're here for all the awards. Yeah. And then when I got my award, I got a standing ovation. Right. But dad looked around and they're like, no, I see, they're all here for you. I'm like, no, 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 no they're here for the awards. Like, <laughs> I saw uh, it. Yeah, he's like, no, I see it, they're all here. Uh, like, they're all here for you. I'm like, okay, it's okay. And so I went on stage and then like, when I came back, it was clear that he like... Yeah, got it. Like, he, oh, he that understood. Must, that must have been a wonderful feeling. It was a good feeling. I've tried for a very long time to make him understand that what I do is, like, A, a real job, but B, something that I am very proud of. Yeah. Um, and I've tried everything. Like, I translated in the game the movie to Arabic. Yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah. show him and he's like, yeah, but all these people are white. <laughs> like, you're Arab. Like, this is not, these, are, these are not your people. Like, this, right. is not, this is not for you. This is, like... And I showed him game loading, and I was a character in the documentary game loading. I showed right. him that. He's like, yeah, but all these people are poor. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's not wrong. Maybe uh, you should include him on game design, too. Yeah. Even a game you want to yeah, yeah. <laughs> So he, he always had something that was, like, yeah, yeah. not it. And then with the awards, it was the first time uh, he, like, got it. Um, my mom was the opposite. She's, she's, because I travel a lot and I'm never home. She, uh, she'd been secretly reading the games news Aww. for like four years so that when I was home, uh-huh. we could like skip that. Right. And she just go like, how are you? Yeah, sure. Uh, instead, I'd always be like, oh yeah, I was visiting Phil. And she's, so at some point it was like, I would say like, she, I was visiting Phil and she's like, which Phil? Which Phil? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, Tiptoski. And she's like, oh, how's Octodad doing? I'm like, I'm pretty sure I never told you Phil Tiptoski worked on Octodad. How do you know yeah. Phil Tiptoski? And she's like, oh, I saw on your Facebook or something. I'm like, mom, are you reading games news? And she's like, Yes. <laughs> And it turns out she was reading everything, right? right. So uh, we convinced her to, to start playing video games. Oh, and uh, she, uh, her first game was Final Fantasy XV. Wow. We just went pretty, pretty hard on that. Right. Uh, a very accessible game, but I really That's wanted to... the one with all the food, right? Yeah. Yeah, she liked that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's basically this, these, this, because she really likes sort of like the Lord of the Rings narrative. Okay. Like, oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's like a travel... Yeah, like thing. a bunch of kids that don't really have yeah. like heroic properties decide to go on a trip to effectively destroy God, right? Like, that's okay. that's what Final Fantasy is, that's what Lord of the Rings is. Um, she likes that narrative structure, and it's a surprisingly uh, accessible game, uh-huh. because while it is a 3D game, in combat you don't have to move your character to any attack position. If you hold the attack button, you'll just, you'll just warp okay. to the enemy, no matter where you are. So... She didn't know how to use dual sticks. Sure. But moving forward was like a challenge that took us three weeks to a month <laughs> to just overcome. Right. Um, and even then, she would move with the left stick. Yeah. And then when she would hit a wall, she would rotate the camera with the right stick. Yeah. Because she didn't, couldn't do it at the same time. And then the camera would do that thing where if you have a wall and a character, you know, and you rotate the camera into the wall, right. no, you're... it'll start moving close to the character until uh-huh. it clips into your character and yeah. your character becomes invisible. And my mom would panic. She's like, where did I go? I'm like, no, you're still there. Like, the camera is now just, like, in you. And she's like, but I, I don't see where I am. Right. I'm like, no, no, just take a step forward. Right. Just take a step forward, and, the, like, the character will be standing weird so she wouldn't see it. And, like, she would panic. Yeah. It, would take, it took us weeks, if not months, to, to, to get over that. Wow. But it was fascinating seeing her perspective. Because sure. a lot of people get into games, and they have, like, this uh, invisible literacy. Yes. Now game worlds work. Yep. She just doesn't. She yep. has 60 years of life experience. Right. But zero of games experience. So she would come across like a shopkeeper. Shopkeeper would go like, do you want to buy new weapons? And her mom was like, oh, sh-. Like, what are, you, are you trying to sell me weapons? And she'd just run away. She's like, this is, a, this is some shady stuff. Like, 
this random guy on the street is just like, hey, you want to buy guns? And mom's like, no, I'm out. I'm not. We're not doing this. I've yeah. seen this movie. Like, yeah, 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 this doesn't end well. Um, this is a bad guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, or uh, you play in, in, in Final Fantasy, you play Crown Prince, and she'll go like, somebody would go like, you want to bring this, uh, you want to help me harvest onions? And she's like, I'm the Crown Prince. I'm not helping you harvest onions. Like, are you kidding me? Uh, it's lovely how like she she can like relate it to the actual prince yeah. and what, yeah. you know a prince's duties are or not like don't trick me are you you're oh, fired yeah. there's such a conflict in games between like just the standard forms of play and whatever story we overlay on it and we just like we don't even think about it because like yeah. I know what this is this is a farming game or an RPG or whatever and I'm going to do the we thing I've always done and no one just like reads the thinks of like yeah exactly how it, it was funny like if if you would see a cracked wall. Mm-hmm. I, you would blow it up to get yeah, the treasure behind it. My mom's just like, this building is structurally unstable. And I'm like, no, you should blow that up. She's like, I don't want to die. Because <laughs> she doesn't know that the building won't collapse, yep. right? So yep. she just extrapolates everything yeah. to the real world. Um, this building is not going to collapse because that would have cost way too much time. Yeah, there's so much effort. Yeah. You have no idea. Yeah. It would, the whole game would have to be about collapsing buildings. So, so she, she played that. And then because she rejected every side quest in the game, because <laughs> she was either a crown prince or she was saving the world. Right. After that, we played uh, Dragon Age Inquisition. Wow. Uh, specifically because the side quests make narrative sense. You're okay. like building a resistance. Right. So she 100%ed that. You really, which threw was her, you really threw her into the deep end of the pool. Well, I think I, I, I really wanted that. Like, yeah. uh, because it's easy to go like, okay, we're going to just start with like, you know, uh, Candy Crush. And yes. then just kind of work our way up. But that's not how I learned how yep. to play games. Sure. And I kind of wanted to see... I wanted, to see, I wanted her to see the games that I like grew up with just now right so we did Dragon Age Inquisition and she 100%ed that to the point where when she got to the final boss which is this giant beautiful cinematic fight she's kind of destroyed like the boss (laughs) in like mid sentence (laughs) right in the introductory speech something supposed to happen here I don't know yeah I messaged her I'm like how how did that go she's like oh it was very underwhelming I'm like I remember this huge epic battle with like teleporting up this castle that's floating in the sky and she beat him before like he could get two steps in um, so that was the thing uh, and then uh, Persona 5 okay. because in Dragon Age she just kept doing the same three attacks over and over okay. so I thought a turn based game would teach her about like weaknesses and strength Right. and uh, after that she really, she really wanted to play God of War okay. so we had to play God of War she wanted to be an archaeologist when she was, she was growing up okay. and Norse mythology was just not, not a thing she, she practiced on or, uh-huh. or learned so she was curious she about that yeah and then, uh, since then, she's been playing Destiny 2, her first first-person game. She found that really hard. Right. That wasn't... Because... It's, it's, the perspective in first-person is... Sure. She doesn't have an anchoring point. Yeah. Right? Like, the, the geometry in games doesn't read to her, like, real geometry still. Mm-hmm. And which means that in Persona, if she was walking towards the camera, um, she would not understand that geometry that was there before is still there. Yeah. Like, it would just not be... Like a, like a kid, you know, when you cover the eyes of a kid and they don't think you're there anymore and then right. they're surprised when you, like, show your face again. She had that with game geometry. It yeah. just wasn't real uh, until, like, much later. Um, so when she lost that anchoring point mm-hmm. from third-person games, it just it, it didn't it didn't work. So it took a long time for her to get used to first-person and she just didn't really enjoy it. So she recently switched to uh, Assassin's Creed Origins, okay. which is what she's playing now. Well, it's quite a digression, but I, I enjoyed the story. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I find it fascinating. It's just as a designer, it's fascinating seeing yeah, somebody sure. like learn that you know, 
And it makes you really appreciate how, how bad we are at onboarding. Yeah. As a medium, as a whole, how bad we are, like, just saying, okay, if you've never played a game before, yeah. here's well, how you play this game. Yeah, but, like, in a sense, though, like, what do you do, right? Like, does every game need to, like, start with the assumption that, like, someone is going to be playing this game as, like, their very first game? Like, I mean, that's just, I, I don't know if I can handle that as a designer, honestly. At least I don't for, know. Like, I think, I think there's, there's something to be said for at least making sure that people have the ability to get to the point where they can experiment, right? Because, mm-hmm. like... Showing how left stick works, showing how right stick works, showing how like jump and crouch work. We kind of agreed that we should do those things. Yeah. Like regardless of, of, of whatever. Skill level, because they're also relatively easy to skip. Yeah. Like honestly, doing an opening quest that's just very introductory. Yeah. That you can kind of skip if you're good at it. Yeah. yeah. It's fine. It really isn't I feel like it isn't that much of a challenge. Yeah, yeah. It's just something that we kind of skip and we, we use all sorts of like beautiful excuses like, oh, Somebody, if somebody needs to learn this, they wouldn't enjoy that game. Let me tell you, my mom like, <laughs> loved God of War. That's awesome. Yeah. But she would have never played that yeah, yeah. If, if it wasn't for me sitting there. That's a shame. Yeah, it's... A... But also forgetting that like the, the new generation basically are like more... They have like a certain type of literacy with smartphones, with computers. Or, like you're no longer you know, catering for the you know, people who... Did not grow up with such technology. Right. right. Well, so I mean, that's kind of the other side of it. It's like functionally speaking, it's going to be hard to find. It's going to be harder and harder to find people, you know, that are like don't have games literacy. Yeah. Eventually, so it's kind of like I don't know. I mean, it might be like, controller literacy then becomes like a question, right? Or yeah. Keyboard literacy. I mean, I'm I'm all for accessibility. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. great. So it's like you want to, you know, you want to do that as much as you can. But then at the same time, you know, like also you're going to need to, if you're making an interesting game, you're probably pushing outside of the boundaries of conventional games, yeah. which means that's the stuff you're going to have to focus on teaching, yeah. right? What's the thing that separates your game from, from yeah. everything else? And like, so it's, it's I think that's true, but it's like, you don't, you, you got to remember that for people that are not game literate, that actually doesn't feel like new gameplay. Yeah. Sometimes they, just, they can get that stuff easier. Yeah. Right. Because, uh, some games like play with that really well. I, I had that with Nier Automata, okay. which like very in a very sublime way plays with your game literacy and kind of like uses it against you at your various points oh, yeah, throughout yeah, the yeah. game. Yeah, I love when uh, games do that. Yeah, no, Nier Automata was like a, a phenomenal uh, exploration of that uh, in, in narrative structure and in gameplay. Um, it used it used these these tricks. Um, so it's a game. The spoilers. Um, it's it's a game that very much. Uh, it's like a linear story, right? right? You play you play this character. She's an android, and she she's living in this post-apocalyptic world, in which androids are like humanity's last weapon against this robot invasion that happened like centuries ago, and all the humans have fled to the moon, yep. and they're they're using these androids to like defeat the robots and then get back to Earth, and you kind of play this character, and you find like two like malevolent AIs and you defeat them and then the game is over right, right. And, and then it's done but then at the end of the credits there's a message that says okay you should just play a new game so you boot up a new game and now instead of playing that character you play the sidekick character mm-hmm. that was there throughout the entire game and now you play his perspective on it mm-hmm. but his ability in, in the game is that he can hack enemies so instead of fighting you're now hacking enemies and, and part of that is that you're seeing into what they think and what they believe okay. and there's sort of this gray morality in the first playthrough as to like are these robots actually evil mm-hmm. and the second playthrough when you can actually see into their thoughts you're like okay these robots are not evil they're just you know they're, they're surprisingly human in, mm-hmm. in how they are and then when you complete that the game does this 
moment that still just stuck in my head as one of the, you know, the most clever pieces of game writing is you play a little bit of game and then it goes into like what you can only describe as like an intro sequence. Okay. Right? Like, you know, before the game starts in a game, yep. uh, before you even get to the menu screen, okay. it plays that sequence and then goes to a menu screen. And it's this, it's this moment in which this, this safe location throughout the entire game gets destroyed. Mm. And it genuinely feels like you're building up a sequel. Okay. Like it just genuinely feels like you're building up a sequel. And I've never seen anybody use that. Because it's such a game literate, like it's if if you have game literacy, it's such a recognizable moment. You're like you're sitting in this like epic intro sequence and it's like the sequel to the game, so everything you knew in game one is like getting changed so that we can like restart with your character and they can go back to level one and it's like they're playing a hundred percent on all of those like little emotional beats. And then it just goes to title screen and you're just like wait, what? <laughs> what, like okay is, is this a sequ- this is okay now I'm still the same game right and then the game actually continues the story from there on to like the actual ending um, but the game just keeps using those little things against you right? like what what yeah because yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I think if my mom would play it she would be extremely unimpressed right like she'd just be like oh, oh it was a weird video it's like and then it was in the menu it was very odd was right like, yeah like why are they doing this yeah but for me it was like yep Okay, yeah, I felt that. Like, yeah. it, it worked. And yeah. I, I, Classical conditioning is taken, that you take for granted, is removed. It's like putting the X button where you close the page on the left on side. On the other side. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. So, the, so the game keeps using that. And I, I find that fascinating when, yeah. when game literacy becomes uh, a tool against, yeah. Yeah, against the player or for the player. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's cool. All right, well, we should jump back in the timeline here. Yeah. So, uh, so you were like you were like a teenager growing up. We're asking like if your parents were like you know taking interest. Yeah. But you were. So were you thinking like you want to make games at this point? Yeah, I, I was either going to be a pilot or a game developer. Oh, that was that okay. was sort of my hope, but right. um, I didn't know how. Right. That, that was the main issue. I didn't right. know how. So, uh, and did you learn like? Classical uh, classical programming language, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I played with C. I say I played with C plus plus. And um, ironically, the programming language that that did most for me was not any of those. It was a basic language. Sure. It was called Dark Basic, and it was this hobbyist three okay. uh, D game language. It was very simple, very accessible. And through that, I came across this game studio in Boise, Idaho, called mm. Star Wraith three D Games, and they did Space Sims. Okay. Uh, it was this, this, this guy, uh, Sean Bauer, and uh, he, he was working on a, a series called Star Wraith, and they were like space combat games. Okay. And when I came across that studio, uh, he had just released a game called Drift Space, which was a mercenary version of that game. So it had like a little economy, and uh-huh. you could like travel through the universe and right. trade and do stuff like that. And I just kind of fell in love with that. I've always loved space. Right. Um, I've always loved. Um, you know the questions that are left in the universe I'm, I'm incredibly bored by the answers we find because right. they always seem so much less imaginative than our imagination is like right. you, you read old sci-fi and it's like Venus is like full of dinosaurs right, like, sure. like, you know like, like people yeah. that Mars has the canals and yeah and then, yeah. And then we find that it's like no your skin will just melt and it's like <laughs> oh that's disappointing I yeah, want yeah. a dinosaurs um so, so these, these games were always uh, fascinating. So I kind of joined that forum and I hung out a bit and I was very inspired by this idea that this one person effectively could make... Could make the game. Games. Yeah. Like, just from start to finish, like commercial games, right? This person was selling these games. Mm-hmm. Um, like, pretending to be a games company. Right? Like, <laughs> it was so cool. Yeah. Uh, so I helped out a bit. Like, uh, you know, like, I, I was pretty good with Photoshop, so I would help with, like, little 
uh, image things I wrote like for like marketing or something like what yeah for marketing what? stuff but also like the, the, the logo intro okay. screens like okay. stuff like that um, I would help with like creating like new systems in the game and like kind of doing like very basic level design okay like uh, that like you made suggestions or you like you made actual assets that like like both they, they were okay. also very moddable games so I would just create stuff and then Sometimes he'd be like, "Can I use that?" And oh, like, yeah, wow. cool, cool. Uh, so, so but, was, wait, hold on a second. This was I'm trying to think through. Like he had made a shit, like a finished game. Yeah, and you'd make an asset and you put it in the game. So yeah, was, yeah, yeah. These games before? were getting updated. And like, they were getting updated. Yeah, okay. they were getting updated. Okay. And supported and okay. Excellent. Uh, then by the time uh, Evochron, which was the next game, came out, I was pretty like common in the team and yep. in the feedback and. But like this was absolutely Sean's game. Like this sure. was this was his uh, baby. What, what year would this be? This would have been like 2008 ish. 2008. Yeah, okay. 2007, 2008. Okay, so this is the early. Like early I was reaching my twenties. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and and I was in high school, um, and I was just every opportunity I had. I wanted wanted to, I wanted to work on games. I think right. so. Uh, do we want to skip over here? So like you said, you were well better known. So were you like kind of like a part of the team at that point? So I I wouldn't say like part of the team, but definitely like a contributor to. Okay. Uh, and and sort of like um, and you would make you just said like you assets them? and levels and like, like writing like lore arts or just yeah. like, let's say like I was a very persistent fan who sometimes got their their, their work the into the game okay cool um, so I, I was part of that and I don't know like since I guess if you're asking for like my story into games like the the missing link in this story is is the person that made me realize that. Um, there was value to this, which was my, my elementary school teacher. Oh, really? Um, who realized I was just... I, like, I've been an annoying student all my life. Okay. Like, I'm very bad with authority. For sure. Uh, okay. Especially, like, authority that I've not given anybody, and apparently that's the thing since I was a kid. My elementary school teacher is pretty much one of the only teachers in, in my life that realized that I was just bored instead uh, of annoyed. Yeah. So he gave me two things. He gave me a chess program. Mm. So he, he started a chess program within school... And we ended up being like national, like thirtieth or something, cool. uh, as a school. Mm-hmm. And he started a computer program. Okay. And the chess taught me like to think about games in an interesting way, and the computer taught me how, like how to work with computers in a more formal context than I could at home. Okay. Because at home I was just typing stuff. Sure. El- okay. Over here, elementary school means like ages like six, six, to seven. Ten. Yeah, six, same? yeah, six, seven years oh, old. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So you were. I was you're bored. A, you're a smart kid then. Like, I, I was a smart kid. I was an annoying kid. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's definitely the. Uh, I, I would read all the school books at the start of the year and then just not need right. any class again. Right. And then they would, like, the good teachers would just give me stuff for the next year. Right, sure. The bad teachers would just make me read it again. So for <laughs> those teachers, that was a disaster. That sounds right? terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and for the teachers that would have additional stuff for me, I was not annoying, right, would right. be the best way to say it. Okay, so this um, teacher, he kind of, you said he was inspiring yeah, you in that, go ahead. That, that I could, like, do this in a context that uh, adults would approve of, right? right? Because my parents were both like, Rami's just playing games. Mm-hmm. But this elementary school teacher was like, no, this is, like, an, a, a useful expression of his creative... Like, I, I read a document that my parents have that has that phrase in it, like, a useful expression of Rami's creativity. Right. Um, I got that, like, a few years ago from my dad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I grew through school, like did programming, did web programming, did like games programming, and then I ended up with Evercron with Star Wraith games. And then uh, time came to pick an education. Now, in, in, I know in the US that's like a very big choice. In the Netherlands, school is free. Right. Like I get paid to go to 
to university, like $120 a month so I can pay for like a place to live. Right. Um, so it, it's not that big of a choice. Do you have to, I assume you have to test in somehow? No, not, just not really. Uh, I mean, some schools have test ins, but right. um, I applied to two universities. I actually got rejected from both okay. uh, for the first time. Uh, because uh, a piece of paperwork went wrong. Okay. So instead, I, I sold computers like as a as a retail like salesman for okay. you. That was actually very helpful. It taught me how to negotiate and like talk to people and okay. like try to sell things to people. Cool. Uh, and then the next year, I, I enrolled. Yeah. There was one technical university and one design university, mm-hmm. and I decided between the two, I wanted to do design. Okay. So I enrolled in game design school. Um, yeah, it was game design school. It was game point. design school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was the first game design education in the Netherlands, okay. and then the other one was the second one. Okay. And the second one was in all English. The first one was in Dutch, but the first one was an art school, and the second one was a tech school. And I decided that I was more interested in the uh, creative aspects of game development than the technical. Yep. Because I was already a pretty decent programmer. Okay. So I was like, I can teach myself this. Right. I've never thought about that. So let's go learn that. Right. Uh, so I went to school. And the first year was awesome. It was like like all these perspectives on game design I'd never thought about, like interaction design and like you know like UX and uh, art history and how it relates and like uh, graphical arts and like I had to learn how to draw. Like right. I I could do Photoshop, I'd never done drawing, right? Mm. Like learning about like composition and tempo and music and sound and all these 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 like oh, all these aspects. Super broad. That's great. oh, it was super broad. That's it was great. perfect. Right? It was yeah. an art school. It, it it just gave you tools. Yep. And then you just you just do things, right? Like it doesn't like we, we're not going to tell you what to do. We're yeah. just giving you. Well, that's a good point, approach. Like, why are you? Why would you want to tell artistic people what to do, right? So like, that, that was great. Yeah. And um, and in that year, I, I met a lot of people that I um, that I learned a lot from. Mm-hmm. And the second year, uh, sadly, they changed curriculum, and uh, a lot of the stuff that we got taught in the first year was being retaught in the second year. So okay. I was like the most bored human you can possibly imagine like um, I decided to set up this this uh, project where we take the best students from, from the entire school not just from my year but from the entire school and try and make a game okay. right, a commercial game and we actually pitched it to Xbox Live Arcade Okay, and they actually greenlit it really? yeah which in like 2012 2011 was like a pretty, huge deal yeah, pretty big deal yeah and especially for students yeah right? It was this this space sim because that was what I was good at. Yeah. But like a lot more arcadey, a lot more like playful, and um, um, I honestly the game was like super doomed. Right. Like we, the team was huge. Like I got like the best eighteen people. That's pretty big. For it was too big. It was way too big. We yeah, were what never was the understand. scope? It was gonna be like the a one school year project. Essentially. Yeah, one and a half. One and a half, one half okay. two years. Um, so we got pretty far with like making like a vertical slice, which was yeah. sort of like the hope, like one good level and like good gameplay. And for most of these people, would this be like a third or a quarter of their class load? It's not like the full, or is it, it a full time thing? It was pretty. It was pretty hard on people. Like yeah. it was like beyond their classes, we would work until like ten p.m. Right. at the school computers. Right. And uh, and it was great. And and one of the designers in particular is is somebody that's worth mentioning, because um, he was this this uh, little. He's this artistic designer that I came across, very um, anti-money, like very anti-business, um, made a lot of prototypes in like three hours. <clears throat> he was part of this community uh, of developers online um, that would just like, they would come from school and they would post like, make a game about a, a, a dog chasing a car. And then at like 6 p.m., 
they would close it, it done. Right. and then best game got like a thumbs up and then they would do it again the next day and they would right. just do that so this, this guy made like hundreds of games and like 99 of them were like absolutely terrible and then one of them had potential to be good but he just dropped it after three hours right but he was very good at design right like um so he was part of the team um and we just didn't like each other Okay, but I really respected his work, and he was like, "Well, I mean, this seems more interesting than school, so we'll do that." So, in the second year of the project, school actually clamped down on it because I was becoming a third years, and in the third year, uh, they need their best students to do external projects. Okay, because those external projects are like advertisement for the school, the school right? And so they even keep though, good even ties. You guys were doing your own project that was greenlit by Microsoft. They needed us to do other projects. Oh, that's... So because we used the school computers, uh-huh. they technically owned our work. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they just shut us down. Just completely. Just entirely. Wow. And that's when I decided that I was going to quit school. Sure. So I asked the rest of the team. I told the rest of the team what happened. I told them like I'm going to quit. I don't need any of you to quit. Like just please finish your education. It's important. But like I. This is not me. Like I can't do. I can't sit here for two years and like do work for a school that like basically screwed over this project. So yeah. I decided to drop out, and then that one kid, the one annoying kid, decided to drop out as well. Um, he's really good at starting things because he started 100 games a year. Right? Okay. I'm really bad at finishing things because that's <laughs> what I did. So we looked at each other and we said, "Okay, let's do one game together." I don't like you. You don't like me. Fine, we'll do a game, we'll make some money, and then we'll, we'll go our separate Why ways. didn't you like him? So think of him as, like, the full opposite of me. Okay. So if I'm, like, I'm, like, a very pragmatic, like, I'm a practical person. I've grown up with, like, just this weird perspective on the world as, like, being this sort of, like, relative place where a lot of things that seem absolute are not necessarily absolute. Uh, I've grown up with, like... My dad pressuring me to, to do some things that not only are good, but also that make money and allow me to sustain myself. Um, he grew up like entirely Dutch. Okay. Um, in a very artistic environment, like very creative. Um, he believed in making things more than finishing things. Okay. Right? And he genuinely believed that um, the game should not be made for money. Okay. They should be made for fun. Right. Um, so I thought he thought I was a suit that was sure. just in there for the money and I thought he was uh, just the most annoying hipster right. that you could possibly think of right? right so you guys were archetypes for each other yeah we were like yeah we were like uh, opposites like yeah. any movie he likes I hate like any <laughs> song that I listen to he dis- like he's disgusted by like right. anything I do is too poppy anything he does is too artsy um so we decided to start a game studio together. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Of course, yeah. Why not? yeah. It was the it was the only way for us to survive at that point. So uh, we started Flambeer, and he had this little prototype called um, Crates from Hell, uh-huh. and it was just this fascinating little subversion. Right? It was a little action platformer, and you got points, but you didn't get points for killing enemies. There would be this one crate in the level. And that crate would contain a random weapon. Okay. You wouldn't know what weapon it was. But every time you picked up a new weapon, you would lose the old one and get a point. Okay. So this weapon could be better, it could be worse. Uh, but the only way to get a point is by switching. Um, and then just these enemies would come. And you would have to like manage the enemies, manage your odds with like the next crate. Am I going to grab the crate now? And Am I going to grab the crate later? It was just this very smart little... 
subversion and just like crates would keep spawning and then you would you know you would get points and there was just clearly something there right but he was not going to finish it right so I said like what if we take this game we polish it up instead of you like dropping it after three days of work we're just going to like spend three months on it and he's like three months I'm like three months <laughs> and then we'll launch it on an Xbox Live Arcade okay. like I'm sure like with you know I, I know they're unhappy about this project being cancelled but um, I'm sure if we pitch like something small maybe they'll they'll be interested in it so that turned into Super Crate Box and instead of crates continuously spawning he changed it so that only one crate would be on the screen at a time as soon as you collected one crate the new one would spawn um and uh, instead of releasing it as an Xbox Live Arcade game, we ended up releasing it as freeware, uh, as a business card. Okay. Like, this was the style of games that this Flambeer Games was going to make. Okay. Um, and it just everything just flipped. Like uh, it got IGF nominated. It was like all over the world. We were flying to San Francisco like months later. Uh, my first trip abroad that was in the Netherlands or Egypt it was terrifying. Right. Uh, no, hold on a second. Did you, so maybe I, I missed. You mentioned you mentioned live arcade. So did you say you were considering doing a live arcade? Like, yeah, we wanted to do live arcade for right. this Super Crate Box game, but we never we never went there. Okay. We, we I, I talked to them, and then we both went like we. This is not big enough for that. Like we need we need people to care for us first. So you cared about if as a business person, you chose exposure. Yeah, I chose exposure over over uh, sales right uh, I thought that in the long run that would be a better choice okay so you just uh, made it free people just get it from your website or something yep, yep. yep. supergreatbox.com okay. uh, it was actually great the, the, um, the boss I had at that real t- retail job mm-hmm. uh, that I took for the year I actually kept doing that throughout uh, uh, university okay um, he had one set when I just got the job he said like Rami you're a smart guy you're not going to be here forever, right? right. Like, I'm, I'm going to be here forever. I love this job. <laughs> right. I enjoy it. I like the people I work with. I'm happy. Life's stable. This is good. But you're going to do something else. So whenever you need like a day off so you can do that, so you can achieve that, just let me know. And the day before Super Crate Box launched, JW, my co-founder, had this idea that we would count every crate collected around the world, Right. Okay. So we would on the website it would just yep. say like so many crates have been collected. And I'm like, that's brilliant. Like it's good, like we can talk about it. If like imagine a lot of people play this game, we can say like, oh a million crates have been collected or something, right? Um so I called my boss and I just said like, Hey, listen, I don't know if you remember, but when I just joined the company you said like if there's ever a day that you need to, to achieve your dreams, like call me. And he said, like, yep, good, we're good. Uh, and he like woke up at like Eight, like 7 a.m. in the morning, went to work, did my shift until 6 p.m. And then from 6 p.m. until midnight, apparently did his job. Right. Like doing the stock and like uh, inventory. Like he just worked like the full day to give me that like day of programming. Right. Um, for which he's still in the credits of every game. Oh, because awesome. without him, like... It turned out that Cray Counter was one of the best stories we could have had. Right. Everybody like, talked it, about it. Everybody talked it. about it. Like the community was like... Revving towards goals, we had million. How in like fast no did time. it go up? What did the, what did the curve look like? It, it was ridiculous. Like it, the first days were relatively slow, and then Kotaku wrote about it, and Rock Paper Shotgun wrote about it, and IndieGames.com wrote about it, and we had million in like no time. Like it was less than a week, I think, and then it just kind of kept going. Yeah, and um, in one like in one play session, like I sit down and play the game for twenty minutes. You get like you get like twenty twenty per run or something if you're if you're pretty good at it. 
So yeah, I guess I was curious about that too. Actually, did, did the game have an end? Like, no, no. You could you could unlock new levels for every thirty crates that you got, and then there were three levels. And then right. if you had those, it just kept going. But the idea was just keep going as high as keep you keep going as far as you can get. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, and there were three difficulty modes. The last mode was a joke. This is a problem that we've consistently had with Lambir. <laughs> we underestimate yes. how. Uh, That's not a problem you've had. No, it's probably the video game industry. <laughs> has. We made a joke mode where the enemies also spawn randomly, which is completely broken. It's not fun. It's not interesting. We were like, well, somebody wants this level of challenge. I guess we'll just make something broken and like whatever. And then like we got like people that were like, this mode is not very fun. But I got like 112 points. We're like, why did you like? <laughs> are you kidding me? Like, why did you do that? Um, so yeah, the game came out. Everything went everything went ridiculous. So uh, that's that's how uh, that's really how Flambeer started right. uh, with this. Um, just this necessity of turning a, a small game into a commercial game, then realizing that commercial game didn't mean much if nobody knew us. So. Right. Okay. So I guess I should ask though. So at this point, you know, you're working a job, support mm-hmm. yourself, I guess, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he's doing whatever he's doing. But you guys were, you know, doing this in your spare time and like yep. as best you could, and like so. Once the game was successful, like, did you try to figure out, like, what did you have a plan for how you could do this? Well, our media plan was to make one game and then stop. But uh, obviously, since the game was free, that was no longer really an option. So there was this this building in the Netherlands called the Dutch Game Garden, and it was this collaborative of, of game developers. Uh, we went to them, sat down, and uh, presented sort of like a business plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I presented a business plan. JW presented games. Um, we just kind of like argued that there was this thing called the indie space, yep, and that there there was opportunity there. Right? Yep. There even for a Dutch studio, like there was space yep. uh, to exist, and that we would find like sort of a counterculture position that was was like interesting to people, and that would uh, both garner attention, but also like potentially make us money in the future. And um, it's funny because the the person who led that was actually a teacher at my university, so he was kind of unhappy with us dropping out. Mm-hmm. But he still gave us uh, an office for the first three months. Okay. So suddenly we were amongst like professional games developers, and uh, that made a difference. Like it, it sort of like leveled up our uh, our expectations for ourselves. Like right. instead of like just making some games, and then we'll see. We're like, oh, okay, we got to take this serious. Right. Mm. Wait. So how did how did this this group work? Like you you apply to them? Is this like a, a yeah? I think if it is like a co-op or like a uh, like what are, what do you call them? Like a, a building just full of game developers. Right, right, right. Uh, there was an accelerator. We were never part of that. Okay. Uh, we just wanted the office. We just wanted like the legitimacy of being in a Dutch okay. game. Okay. So, but they didn't give you money. No, they just give you space to work. Yeah, we never took any funds from our government. Okay. That was a very like uh, in the Netherlands is relatively easy to get those funds at least back in those days, but. For me, I wanted to prove that you could do this, uh-huh. even if you didn't have that. Right. right? Like, I don't know. For me, it's always been about access. Like, uh, it's always been about like privilege. Uh-huh. Uh, I wanted to show that you can do this without like having to rely on government funds. Right. Because nobody had done that. Nobody in the Netherlands had done that. Everybody has always been like government funds, and I know that. You know, the kids around me that were Arab, they're like, they're never going to apply to a government fund. Like, if you have a name like Rami Eswain, like, right. Government is not going to give you money, even if that. I don't know if that was true or not, but it was definitely like the perception, perception yeah. uh, that people had. So I wanted to do it without. Yeah. So we did it without. Okay. Um, and at Super Create Box did really well. And then this little Texas game publisher had just started up. They needed a spin off for a Serious Sam game. Uh, so we did a Serious Sam game. 
Oh, you did? Yeah. Uh, Serious oh, Sam, The Random Encounter. It was a turn-based RPG okay. in the Serious Sam universe. Okay, I remember. I mean, I played the original Serious Sam, which yeah. is a pretty fun, crazy game. It was Crow Team, Croatian game yeah. studio. Yep. And, uh, so, yeah, they... So they hire you two to yeah. make a turn-based Spin-off RPG. Game. Well, so, so they hired us to make a game, and we just kind of thought they wanted a new Super Crate box uh, with, like, reskins. Right. And, but, did like... They, did they just contact you out of the blue? Yeah, they, they saw Super Crate box, box. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, uh, and they were just like... Hey, we, we liked your games. Like, uh, would you would you want to do a serious sound spinoff? And JW was like, absolutely not. <laughs> this is a bunch of suits. Like, we're not we're not going to do that. And I'm like, but I love serious sound. He's like, yeah, I love serious sound too. But like, these are suits. I'm like, okay, here's here's the deal. We'll do the worst pitch possible, <laughs> and then they'll say no, and then I can go to bed sleeping. I didn't say no to a serious sound game. And he's like, okay. I'm like, so just come up with the worst pitch. So he pitched this turn-based RPG, <laughs> and Devolver Digital, as they would be known later, uh-huh. was like, yeah. <laughs> we're like oh <laughs> no. crap okay <laughs> no. I guess uh, we made an okay game in the end I like it's not a bad game it's it's actually quite impressive what we what we, <laughs> what we managed to make out of it why was why did you think the pitch was so bad I mean it's serious Sam it's like about like movement and oh, action just, and hundreds of you enemies you moved it to the totally opposite genre just, yeah, as yeah, far yeah. away as possible and right. it turned out that that was exactly what Devolver wanted right uh, so they just said yes right so then we have to make it okay uh, we did a game for Cartoon Network called Dinosaur Zookeeper. We like super lowball ourselves because we'd done a flash game called Radical Fishing for like ten thousand dollars, right? And we like negotiated that way up, right? It started like four K, and we ended up at like ten K. <laughs> and then the Cartoon Network came to us, and they're like, "How much do you want?" And I'm like, "Oh, we gotta ask for a lot of money. This is Cartoon Network. What if we ask for like thirty grand?" Mm-hmm. We just went to them. And we're like thirty grand. They're like, "Yeah, absolutely." <laughs> like, oh. Shoot. <laughs> I asked some friends later, like, okay, so you, you, they, they asked me, like, how much did you get from Card Network? I'm like, we got 30. Like, you should ask for 60 because they were very simple. And they apparently also yeah. said yes to that. And I, I came across the guy who did the deal with us, and I'm like, so how much did you pay, like, years later, yeah. like, two or three years ago? I'm like, how much did you pay on average for a game? He's like, oh, 250. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and you couldn't, like, just tell these two developers just starting out. He's like, you seemed happy. I'm like, well, hey, yeah, I was. Yeah. That's why, in, that's why Indies have to talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was fun. He, he was a good guy. He's just like, if somebody offers 30K, he can't go to his boss and be like, hey, they said 30, so I paid them 70. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It made sense. Sure. Uh, so that's how I learned to ask for high numbers. Um, then from there, everything just kind of started rolling. Like, sort yeah. of like the, the known Flambria story starts there. Sure. And you guys were just kind of functionally, you're working on the games together, and you're just kind of like doing whatever made, made best sense. And yeah. Think, think of it as a networked organization. So, so we split the company into responsibilities, like okay. the business and the design. JW has veto on design. Okay. So he, he fully has power to decide, like, yes or no on any design thing. Okay. Um, that doesn't mean he's the sole designer. Or like, sure. we design things together. It's just if we get stuck... He breaks the tie. He makes the call. Yeah. And then I have veto on everything else. Okay. So, like, whether it's business or, like, programming or art or whatever, like, that's that's kind of my control. So, think of him as having creative leadership and me as, like, the product owner. And do you guys both do programming and art? Yeah. So, he's a, he's a terrible programmer. Okay. Uh, but he's one of the best game creators I know. Okay. It's kind of a weird contradiction. Think, sure. think of yeah. it this way. The He'll code just... he writes will make any programmer cry. Yes. But it works. But it's fast, I assume. Yeah, he, he's the fast. You will never meet a fast prototyper than Dane Yomelem. Like, he, okay. you sit down and you go like, can you make something where you like kick a ball against the wall and then you like kind of like, you know, if you do it three times, you can turn it into like a blast or something. And like 12 seconds later, it's like, yep, done. Yep. It's like, oh, okay. So, yep. Since he was 13, he has been using this one tool called Game Maker. He oh. found it on a demo disc sure. as well. Actually, okay. he, re- he replaced the sound of a car with a 
of a car klaxon with a cow. Right. So when he hit the klaxon button, the car would go like, and he thought that was so funny that he's still <laughs> making video games. Right. Um, so that's kind of where it started. Um, and then he joined that community where they really rapidly made games, and then he ended up in Vlambeer. Um So he he's just kind of the, the kind of person that just has a million ideas, and like all but one is bad. Right. And his skill is less in identifying what games are good than in just having a lot of ideas. Like okay. That's what he's good at. Do you, do you pick the game that gets done? Then? Yeah, kind of. So okay. he kind of like pitches what he thinks is good to me. Right. And then I like kind of pick what works from that. And, and it's funny because we both learned really well from each other what our sort of like response to a good idea is. Right. I've never, I've never thought of that as a useful skill. Mm-hmm. But like you, you obviously have sort of like reactions to things and, and very often they're subconscious. And for JW, when he gets excited about something, he like he just like dives at the keyboard, uh-huh. right? Like he just has to start programming. Um, well, for me, when I'm interested by something, I kind of like lean back in my chair and just go right. like, "Huh, if, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. so what if?" And like for me, the what ifs like immediately start like kind of like coming it's, out. It's all in your head. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting because recognizing that has been one of the most useful things of my life. Just being like, "Oh, okay." There's something here that like attracts me, and I haven't necessarily figured out what it is, but I just know that somewhere, like the the years of experience uh, being Flambeer has now like translated to sort of like a subconscious feeling right. of what is Flambeer. Yep. Um, so yeah, I, I greenlight the projects, and then what we usually do is we do two three weeks of work right. on a project, and if we're still having fun developing it at that point, okay. we we either go into production or we kill it. Right, right. Uh, so that's sort of like our final green light. It's right. like a few weeks into the project. Right. Because um, we believe if we're already not having fun with development, like two, three weeks in, we're definitely not going to have fun within like a year. Right, sure. Um, and then the other sort of like hard rule we have with Lambert is any prototype can take no longer than two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found that the longer you take on a prototype, the, 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 the relation between prototype and final product is sort of like exponential. Right. So if you do a pro- prototype in one day, you can kind of finish the game in like, a month right to like proper polish and like you know to do all the stuff and like balance it uh, if it takes two days you're already looking at six months right so if you're looking at three days or four days of prototype like we fully assume it to take like two three years right we kind of don't care for that kind of game sure like a uh, year is like sort of where we start getting bored of something and we just want to do something else so um, we kind of build the structure is that the I mean I guess I'm curious is that like it almost sounds like the like the development and the scope is more something you care about than like what the games are necessarily about. Yeah. Know? Or like even like what genre it is or like what type of game or whatever. So the, the interesting thing is I think what we want to do is each of our games just has to be its own genre. Mm-hmm. We don't want a game to like slot into a genre. We want it to be like a subversion that could be a genre. Right. Like Super Crate Bob started this amazing like new race of like subversions on arena platformers. A ridiculous fishing was so unique that nobody tried to do it. Like people tried to clone it, mm-hmm. but it started this sort of like diving mechanic yeah. that became very popular afterwards. Uh, Luftrausers was just like this this sort of like old eighties airplane style game, but like with modern sensibilities. And then Nuclear Throne started this like action rogue like top down action right. rogue like genre that before that had always been two D. Yeah, um, we kind of like we we don't really like the stuff JW makes tends to be somewhat um, strange anyway. So 
in a way, it's not it's not really something that we're super conscious about, but I think inherently we never make something that slots into a genre just right. because it's boring. If we can look at something, we're like, oh, here's the answers, then yeah, why would we make it? Okay. Well, why don't we talk about kind of each of these games, kind of like in you know about what you know where they came from? Yeah. Right. So you know we talked a little about Super Crate Box. Yeah. So. Uh, so it was Radical Fishing before it was Ridiculous Fishing? Yeah, yeah Radical, Radical Fishing was a Flash game. Right, it was inspired so. by a, a documentary about tuna overfishing. Oh. Um, we were watching a, a documentary about tuna overfishing. We'd also been talking about Duck Hunt. And it was this obvious, this beautiful, beautiful shot of like a fish being flung into the air. Uh-huh. And I just clicked with, what if you shoot the fish? <laughs> uh, and we just turned this into what we, what we called like the ultimate Flash game. Okay. So we played a bunch of Flash games and just went like, what is the loop? Mm-hmm. that makes these Flash games fun. And, and we kind of realized that it is, you do a thing, they do another thing, they upgrade your character, and then you can do the thing better. Right. Right. And that's kind of how a perfect Flash game works. Right. And it takes like 30 seconds to a minute and a half to go around that loop. Yeah. So Radical Fishing is built the exact same way. You throw a hook into the water, yeah. then on your way down, you dodge as many fish as you can. Right. So that you get as deep as possible. As soon as you hit a fish, the hook starts going back up. Right. And then you can catch as many fish on your way back as you can, as you can right? So you try to, now you're trying to touch the fish. And for the final stage, you fling them up into the sky, mm-hmm. and you click them to shoot them. Um, and then shooting fish gets you money. Money gets used to buy upgrades, and then you get better at going deeper, which means you can catch more fish, which means... It was sort of like our idea was just like an infinitely positive feedback loop. Right. The, the more you played, the better you got. The more you played, the better you got. Mm. Right. Um, what happens at the end? Well, at the end, you have all the things. And then... Uh, you have the Flash game is just done. Yeah. Uh, Flash <laughs> games didn't really have endings. Sure. Uh, so... Uh, what was the purpose of the shooting? Because I remember playing it and like, oh, okay, I'm like dodging the fish. Yeah. Like I'm grabbing the fish. And oh, no, I can change how through the fish. But, you know, when I was, like, shooting the fish, I'm, like, well, now I'm just, I like, collecting my points, basically. Yeah, yeah like, I, think, I think that was literally it. I think part of it was just, it was, it obviously, it was sort of, like, the, the inspiration. I think the other thing is it gave us two vectors to do upgrades along. Okay. So we had that vector of, like, getting deeper. Right. And, like, getting back up. We didn't really, there was not really an upgrade you could do for that. Right. Like, you, like, slower the rate of ascent. Right. Like, it's kind of the only upgrade that was interesting. Right. Um, but when you shoot the fish... Maybe I just never happened to be, but do you, can you miss the fish? Yeah, they can fall back in the water. Oh, okay. Maybe I guess I just good. never happened. Maybe you're very I'm good at clicking. I'm an awesome you're ridiculous just, fish player. Okay. You're, you're just very good at shooting fish. It's <laughs> okay. Uh, it's All right. Parents go. All right. Yeah, they can fall back to the water, but if you upgrade your weapons, you yeah. usually can handle how many fish are in the air. Like, obviously, the deeper you get, the more fish there are. So, at some point, it doesn't really matter yeah. if they fall back to the water, because whatever. Yep. Uh, so that was Radical Fishing. It later turned into an iOS game called Ridiculous Fishing. Right. Uh, that one that was sort of like... The diff- like, the day we launched Ridiculous Fishing was the day we went from like two poor, like dropouts to like an indie studio. That was like the that was, that was it. the moment um, through uh, sales of it on the iOS. Yeah, it was like day one. We were like not poor anymore. It was it was a thing. That's great. Uh, yeah, it was it was surreal because yeah. you don't you don't expect that. It was a very hard development. Um, the Flash game got cloned. During the development of our iOS right. game, the flash game did you made it? Did you make it for a site or did you guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Board.com. 
Board.com. Okay. Board.com. Yeah, they paid 10K. Okay. 10,001. Okay. So people were cloning it and cloning it on iOS? To iOS. Uh, I seem to remember this. Like, people were trying to get the game out before you did. Or yep. Like yep. That, yeah. And they, they actually contacted us. We uh, They launched a trailer, like, a little bit before we were done. <laughs> and we actually had an email conversation with them. And they just kind of, like, kept us talking while they were prepping for a launch. Yeah. We were naive. We like to think the best of people. Yeah, and sure. It doesn't always work that way. Yeah. Was um, there and so what happened when their game came out? They made a million dollars and did just, they? Oh they yeah, did they did really really well. Wow. Yeah, they got a, a ton of amazing reviews of like such original game mechanics and never seen anything like it before. And it hurt a lot. It almost closed the studio. To be honest, oh, that sucks. Yeah. It, how like, much? How far away were you guys at that point? Like seventy percent ish done. Like another couple months? Yeah, a few months. A few months. Yeah, wow. yeah they they beat us to punch. Yeah. And it was just a, at that point it was a total surprise for us. Know. It was. Yeah. 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 Wow, that does suck. Yeah, what did you guys say to each other that day? Like, you we remember? almost quit. Yeah. Uh, we were just like, well, if, if this is how the games industry works, I don't really care to be here, right? Like, if we work so hard to come up with interesting and weird ideas, and then yeah. some other company can just look at it and go, like, oh, yeah, that, but we have a ton of money and we're going to outsource the game to some studio and they're just going to copy paste it. Yeah. Yeah, then what's the point? Um, so we almost quit. And then. Um, Why didn't you quit? Because we got angry. Okay, sure. The next stage, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It was like just we got angry, and so instead we decided to uh, take them down as okay. hard as we could. Like if we were going to go down, at least they were going to go down with us. Uh, so we just started reaching out to press, to industry websites, to the people that reviewed the game. Yeah, just started emailing them. Hey, like I don't know if you know the story, but like the story behind this game is that. And a lot of websites felt pretty bad about having yeah. like done such a yeah. positive review. That they all started writing articles on, like, this is the story behind right. that story. Then eventually the New York Times got in touch with us. GDC gave us a talking slot to talk about, like, the dangers of cloning. Oh, wow. And, um... Would that have been your first GDC? Uh, second GDC talk. Okay. My first GDC US talk. Yeah, okay. Um... Did you, wait, you said the New York Times? Yeah, New York Times did an article. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so it, it just went everywhere. Like everybody wanted to like have this discussion sure. about like the value of creativity versus like yeah. sort of like this, the cynicism of cloning. Um, well, shrewd business decision, probably. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> it. And it, it, it always comes back to this one question we always get: was like, so what's the clone good for you? And it's, sure. the answer is always like no, but our response to it was very good. Like. A bad thing happened, yes. and we took it, and we, we ran with it as hard as we could. The clone, I would, if I could get back that year of my life, I would, because I was burned out. Yeah. Like, I would open a computer, and like the blinking cursor would just give me a headache. Yeah. Like, straight up. And like, I've been doing things since I was six. Yeah. Like, knowing that I was this close to having a sustainable job in games, yes. and now I just can't use a computer anymore, was terrifying. Yeah. I, would, I would happily give back the money, and like, be like a poor indie studio again. And not have to have dealt with that year. Yep. But were there uh, important, or whether important or solid, or whatever differences between the game that were like were worth talking between the two? Yeah, yeah. I think I think what they did was they um, so they swapped the shooting out for effectively Fruit Ninja. Oh, okay. That was their main difference, which meant that their camera wouldn't go up with the fish, which I think was like a weirdly like elegant way and ridiculous fishing to show progress yes yeah, sure. it's like you would get higher and higher as the fish that you have to shoot got stronger mm-hmm. because every shot would like bump the fish up yeah so you could like fling fish over the moon okay right uh, and i think that was always a, such a good progression indicator uh, and they didn't do that because for fruit ninja you kind of need the screen to stay like, stay, stay stable 
And then they went for like a weird like. So they were like, wait a minute. We can't just clone one game. We, we have to clone two. <laughs> yeah, it was actually really funny. They in the uh, because when the press backlash came, uh, they obviously had their own PR answer. And one of my favorite things, I'll never forget that we printed it with like a photo of like a lawyer mm-hmm. with like a piece of paper in his hand. They said, "Well, we didn't copy all the upgrades." <laughs> and we was like, "This is like, what did you did, did you, you just say? admit to just like cloning our game and then just not cloning these three things?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it turns out it's entirely legal. Sure, like there's nothing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know what? Probably for better. Like I can't imagine what the industry would look like. It's if, one of those questions, right? Like the alternative is also awful. Yeah. Like if somebody goes like, "Oh yeah, jumping that's ours." It's like, boom, we're done. There's, and there have been a few random things like that that have ended up like I forget what it was. It Sega owned like a like a. Like a loading screen minigames. Yes. Yeah. No, that wasn't Sega. This is a different Sega owns like like tutorial pointers or something that happened in World. Wow. Something like that. I but there's yes, there's another company that owned loading screen, loading screen minigames. Yeah. Right. Yes, exactly. And yeah, imagine if that was like every like pop up text. Yeah. Some company owns yeah. pop up so text. I'm <laughs> glad I'll take the clone. Yeah. Right. But so that was ridiculous fishing. Um we did. Um, oh, but, sorry, hold on. I do yeah. have to ask though because we haven't. You haven't quite finished the story. The game came out. You did really well. Yeah. People are going to want to know, like, how did the games do compared to each other? So I think ultimately, I think Ninja Fishing made more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also free to play, so uh, they they had in app purchases. Yeah, uh, we went pretty hard on premium. Yeah. Uh, we we strongly believe that premium games are just they're more pure in how they can deal with design. Sure. That was like a weird, like sort of elitist stance. Like I, I genuinely believe that both are their own types of design. Sure. I just prefer the one. Oh yeah, they're right. fundamentally so, different parts of design. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, the game came out, and uh, you know, when, when we said radical fishing, uh, we said that we were going to make the flash best flash game ever. Right. For ridiculous fishing, us and our team, we had said we're going to make the best iOS game ever. Right. So a year later, we won the Apple Design Award and the Apple Game of the Year Award, which right. means we've made the actual best right. iOS game. Uh, cool. And uh, and uh, in the um, first, because at that point the iOS store was five years old, uh-huh. they did a list of best iOS games ever, and we topped that one. So cool. we actually made the best iOS game ever. So um, it did extraordinarily well for us. It didn't do as well as as the clone, but yeah, sure. it's not what we need. We didn't yeah. need to beat them. We, I think, we wrecked their reputation enough. That sure. Yeah, yeah. We made the point that cloning isn't worth it. So what's it like to go from you know working. <laughs> You know, I don't know. So two, two things, normal life to uh, now suddenly have the money. Two things kind of happened at the same time for me. Like, A, we got money, and B, over the past three years before Ridiculous Fishing came out, 2010, 2013, in the Netherlands, there was no press. Like, there was games press, but it was Dutch, so our, our reach was very limited. The only way for me to travel out of the Netherlands as, like, a school dropout was uh, any way that people would, like, pay for me mm-hmm. to travel. So I just started doing public speaking. Okay. That's kind of where that started. Uh, and uh, I got invited to London, and then mm-hmm. like the talk was very well received in London, and then I got invited to the US, and then, you know, like in the US you need a, a ticket in and a ticket out. Sure. But the event would only pay for one way, so I had to find like another event that would pay for the other way. Events would pay for a one-way ticket? They didn't have money, so they'd say like, well, we can pay one way, but we can't <laughs> pay your way back. And I'm like, okay, well, hold this slot. Right. And We're like gonna I'm, find some other event. I'm going to find another event that will fly me back. It and just seems find... so inherently like it's yes, absurd. Well, that's, it was their way of saying like probably We're not. We're trying to help, right? But yeah. like we'll, we'll we'll help towards it. Well, okay. He worked the mechanics. 
So like somebody would call and like be like, hey, talk to Boston. I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Like, and they're like, oh, we cannot, like, how much do you need? And I'm like this. And they're like, well, we, we have half of that. I'm like, well, if you just find me out. Yeah. Uh, and then I would go and like ask other events and they'd yeah. like, just find all these events and be like, hey, San Francisco, can you fly me to the Netherlands? And they're like, yeah, but like, how are you going to get here? I'm like, I got that. Yeah. Then I'd find like an event in like Kentucky and be like, okay, can you fly me from Boston to you and then from you yeah. to San Francisco? Well, for anyone who follows your Twitter feed, you basically seem like a professional traveler. Yeah, I travel all the time. This, so this is how that started, yeah. right? I started giving all these talks and these talks started getting popular because I was visiting all these places out of necessity. Yeah. Because they would like do, be like the connecting blocks. I couldn't be in the US for like a month at a time. I couldn't be in like France a month at a time because I couldn't pay the hotel. Yeah. So I just had to keep hopping as soon as possible. And the only way to do it was to like visit these tiny niche yep. like communities. Like I just ended up falling in love with those. Like yep. they, so much interesting stuff was happening. Like in the big cities, they have all their big heroes and they're like big companies and they're like doing all their big games and like all the small stuff was where all the, like all the really cool stuff was happening. Like not in the capital, yeah, like somewhere else. So I started doing that and I started getting these emails from like Brazil and Uruguay and like Indonesia and like. India and like, can you come speak for us? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. And like, can you fly me out? And they're like, no. Mm-hmm. Well, can you fly me one way? And they're like, no, we don't have money. Like, what do, you, do we need to pay? And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah I'll like, pay you and I'll speak. Yeah, uh, I don't know how to do. Like, I don't know how to come to you. And then when ridiculous fishing came out, mm-hmm. I told JW like, hey, we have an enormous amount of money right now. Is it okay if I take some of this and use it to like visit all these places that have invited me? Right. So that's what I started doing, that's and then cool. I fell in love with those stories more than you know any story I'd seen. Like the people making games in like the most extraordinary circumstances from like um, countries where like electricity is just not a yeah. given, right? Like they would make their levels and then like trace them. Oh my gosh. Because electricity might go out for two days. So, wow. like, if you want to make, like, an adjustment, programmers that would print their code and then, like, mark it because, right. you, you know, limited computer time. That's stories that you'd hear in, in the West in, like, the 70s yes. when you had, like, limited computer time. Yeah. But, like, that's still happening around the world. Yeah. Like, the amount of passion that people have for game development is incredible. Like, when you think about it, I had to learn English when I was a kid before, yep. I, could in, before I could understand code. Yep. Right? If doesn't mean anything in Dutch. Yeah. Like, else doesn't mean anything either. Okay. But, like, if you're an Arab, yeah. you even have to learn to read from the other side. Right? Yeah. Because Arabs are like right to left. They have to learn a different alphabet. Yeah. They have to learn a different way of dealing with a computer. Programs, like computer languages. There's no Arabic programming language. Yeah. There's a concept for an Arabic programming language called El, made by a New York designer called Ramzi Nasser. And he just made, like, an Arabic programming language. I've tried to explain to my dad that what I do is, like, engineering. Mm-hmm. And I showed him code. He never got it. I showed him, like, one, like, one page of El. Really? And he's like, oh, that's it. Huh. Why didn't you just say that? I'm like, that's what. That's, yeah, yeah. Well, fair enough. That <laughs> Rami. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just do that thing. I'm like, that's what I'm doing. Um, but like the, the obstacles that a lot of people around the world have to being part of our industry are enormous. Yep. Uh, and regardless, they are here. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, it's the the need to create is universal. And the need to create games is far more global than we like to think. Because yep. when we think of game developers, you know, like. The, the sort of like exotic game developers like a John Romero who is like half American or like a, um, a Japanese game designer like Fumito Ueda mm-hmm. who's like Japanese but those are like the two major countries in yep. our industry like yep. if you can name me like an Iranian game developer or like a Kenyan game developer or a Uruguayan game developer like they're all there I've not been to a single country in the world where game development isn't a thing yeah like whether you go to like Palestine whether you end up in like 
uh, Chile, where you end up in uh, South Sudan, like the youngest country on earth. Yep. One of the most inspiring game developers I've ever met is South Sudanese. The country is seven years old. There's right. game developers there. Yep. Right? They're everywhere. And, you know, like, as soon as I started doing that, I just couldn't stop. Or, like, I, I started feeling like there, nobody, is, nobody is, like, being a voice for these people in an industry that is talking about voices all the time. They're like, the underrepresented voices this, underrepresented voices that, diversity this, inclusivity that. I'm like, all the words you're saying are English. Mm. Like, even the word diversity is English. I go to Russia, I ask, like, how do you feel about the diversity debate? They're like, oh, yeah, that's not for us. And then they're talking about themselves. They're talking about American women. They're talking about American black people. They're talking about American. They're not talking about, like, they say African-American. They don't mean African. Mm. They mean African-American. Yeah. Right? And it's like that kind of thing. I'm like, how can it be that even the word diversity feels exclusionary to a lot of people? So I said, like, I want to, I want to fight that fight. Right? Like, I've, I've grown up without a role model. I, it shouldn't be that way. So... Everybody around the world, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, they should be able to look at like a GDC or, or industry as a whole and see somebody that looks like them that like that they can show to their parents and be like, look, like this is a real job. Like this guy is doing it. This girl is doing it. This person is doing it. Like until we're there, like this is a fight that I'm going to keep fighting because this industry, like we have the most global language in the world. Yep. No matter where in the world I go, I put a ball on the ground, I kick towards somebody, they kick it back. Yeah. Right? Like this is, it, it doesn't need explanation. We understand play. We've been doing play since we were like just starting out as a species. So why do we only get to listen to this language when it's spoken by specific people? Yeah. So it's a, this is a fight. It's worth fighting. So what do, what do the people who are outside the traditional centers of game development, what do they need? So what they need is, A, they need the world, they need the, the industry to be a little bit less Western-centric. Like a lot of structures that we think of as global, they're mm-hmm. not global, they're Western. For example, the Game Developers Conference, for example, sure. last year had this beautiful map where people could post where they're from, right? Like this beautiful map and you put red stickers on it and yeah. show like, this is, this is where GDC is from. And it was meant as this like beautiful yep. uh, gesture of like, this is how global we are. There were like three, steps, uh, three dots in Africa. Right. In fact, I took a photo of that map filtered every color except for red from the sticker and I put that at the start of my one reason to be panel where I fly people from all around the world to come to GDC and speak mm-hmm. um, if you just had the red dots you would not be able to recognize this that's the planet that's, you just wouldn't like yeah. there's like a few red dots and those like represent America and you can kind of see the shape of America but the shape of America without the context of Asia without the context of Africa does not read as a world map right if like a bunch of dots in America a bunch of dots in Australia South, South Africa had a few dots and then like a little bit of Brazil and then Europe which is like a hot spot like unless you were really like unless you were really guessing it, it was not a world map right so we need to like understand that the, the industry needs to fragment a little like these major conferences are extremely useful for networking but they're not global conferences and in fact like a lot of these structures being seen as like the de facto reality makes it very hard for somebody from like Africa to be part of that because if you just if every advice is like so how do you break into the industry oh you go to GDC it's like right great. like that's like seven year salaries like I, right. I literally cannot afford that or um, uh, for one reason to be where I fly these people from all over the world every time I do it I have visa rejections yeah like this year uh, Nouran Al-Sharif who is an Egyptian uh, game developer she was going to be here we ended up having to read her talk with everybody on the panel because her visa was just straight up rejected yeah. over the years of organizing this panel I've had visa rejections because people were unmarried because they didn't have kids because they're independent they run their own studios so they're not employed 
and they're just like staying risks. Like they come oh, to the US yeah. and they might not leave. Right. Um, that's true for Europe as well. Like I say as if this is an American problem, but it's as much a problem in Europe. It's a much problem in Canada. Like we just like to think of all these people from outside as like they want to come here. Most of them don't want to come here. Most of them want to just live life. They just yeah. want to do their thing and then go back. Like, yeah. It's not as if when I go to like, uh, when I go to like any, any country in the world, when I go to Uruguay, a lovely country, but nobody goes like, oh, you might stay. Like, it's just every day like it's not. Right. Most people in the world don't want to do that. They have families, they have homes, they have lives, they have hopes, dreams. Yeah. Um, like sure, there's people who want to immigrate. They're not going to go to the Game Developers Conference and sneak into the US. Right. That's not... Yeah, it's kind of an expensive way of doing it. <laughs> um, so that's kind of like these. These are these are challenges that we have to be aware of. And language is such an underexplored topic in our industry because English is such a critical part of game development. Yeah, our documentation, our tool sets, our default languages, our conversations, our talks. Did you know that there's one game design book in Arabic? Hmm. The only Arabic game design book. It was written by Fozi Mesmar, who works at King. He released it this year. Okay. It's the first ever game design book in Arabic. Like this is information. It's just like all this information about like how to structure your game, how to think about game design, how to think about tutorialization, how to, all these things that have been like just common knowledge available all over the internet in English. It's just now in Arabic. Yeah. Which means that for the first time ever, an Arabic kid can pick up a book and get that knowledge and get that like head start that anybody who speaks English automatically has. Yeah. Not even aware of it. So. Acknowledging the privilege of English, acknowledging the privilege of being in the Western world, and like explicitly making efforts to equalize that is going to be critical to our industry if we want to truly be a global medium instead of just saying we're a global medium and just ignoring Africa. I often wonder about, uh, you know, I I, do hear about African teams and, you know, uh, or, you know, that could be anywhere, anywhere where you don't assume there's, you know, traditional games industry. I'm always very curious about, you know, how they survive, like, in a sense of, like, the games market is very global, right? Like, you're, you know, you're selling on Steam, you you know, it's not going to, like, it's not going to fill, I mean, maybe Steam filters are locally, I'm not really sure, but, like, you know, basically, you have one giant app store, you have one giant Steam, you have one giant, you know, Xbox and PlayStation, all the same, like, is there some sort of sense of, like, a way to sell to a local market that, like, is, you know, shares your culture? Yeah, I think, I think so, so there's, there's sort of different stages. Like, when, when you think about stores, you have to think that um, they're, they're relatively global. Like, the app store is relatively global, right. but in, like, China and parts of Africa, it's not really relevant. In Africa, a lot of people sideload apps. Like, okay. you, you, you root the phone, and then you just... You go to, like, a marketplace, and, like, some... Some guy with a computer will load like the last twenty popular apps onto your phone, right? And you don't pay for them, and they're pirated copies. Like absolutely, right. and, like China has like a, a very famous like fragmentation of stores. Uh, Apple is just not very used there. Everybody uses Android, um, and there's like a hundred Android stores. Sure, uh, right? So uh, stores are relatively global. The main thing is payment processing is not. Mm-hmm. So credit cards, for example, are relatively local. They're a pretty American thing. In Europe, a lot of people don't have a credit card. Yeah. This is relatively new. Like I, I got my first credit card when I started traveling to the U.S. a lot because mm. I have a debit card. Right. Because that's what we use in Europe. We find those safer, and here they find credit cards safer. It's a very odd <laughs> juxtaposition. Sure. Um, we just I'd never had a credit card before. It sounds terrifying to me, a card with money that you then have to pay back. It's weird. Yeah. Um, but so for a lot of places, like using stores doesn't work the same way as we use them here. Uh, so 
In Africa, very commonly, your phone provider is your wallet because you don't have a credit card. They okay. instead pay like you know, like a prepaid card. You buy like right. a prepaid phone mm-hmm. card and then pay with your phone uh, currency or your phone wallet, yep. effectively. Um, so even though stores are relatively like centralized, the way of interacting with them is, is very specific. Um, I think per country, survival is is very different as a as a goal. There's a lot of places where Game development is sort of seen as a hobby, mm-hmm. um, and as such, it's not really something that people do as like a full time job. It's usually like um, pa- like part time outside of your working hours. A lot of companies uh, double as like animation studios or technology studios. Technology studios is more common in South America mm-hmm. and in Asia, while animation studios is more common in the Middle East. Okay, um, and then Africa kind of is like in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a lot of. Um, a lot of studios do outsourcing work uh, for Western companies. It's actually been a kind of a problem in some countries in Asia where outsourcing culture was so prevalent that they have very talented programmers, very talented, very talented artists, very talented uh, musicians, but not designers. Okay. Because sure. they've just never really had a design culture. Yeah, they've uh, just been given stuff to do. Yeah, and now they have to like import design knowledge yeah. uh, and, and deal with that. It's been a big topic in India the last five years. Mm. Um so you're seeing like survival has very different meanings in a lot of countries, and um, in some countries it's very much like okay, it's very similar to here. It's like, okay, you have to be able to like be, uh, you have to be able to pay for yourself, you have to be able to pay for your employees, you have to be able to do this full time thing. That's like survival. While in other countries it's like you can do it on the side, and you're kind of making a thing, and that's that's survival. So it's kind of a hard question. Yeah, um, I mean, do you, are a lot of them just like they have a dream, basically? Like they're yeah, they're, they, they're doing something to make a living, and then they're they're with, you know they make games because they dream that like who knows? They can, yeah, they can I think make, they can make Flappy Bird or whatever. Yeah, right? you know, Flappy Bird was a big one. Yeah, uh, th- think of it as like there, there's sort of like six stages of, of communities. You've got the first one where there's individual developers that don't really know each other. You've got the second one where a local community has sort of like started. They do meetups. Yeah, that's kind of like the I have a dream, like yep. I want to make a thing, but we don't really know how to do it. Then by the time you leave, we reach like your third stage, you're starting to um, you're starting to either like import external talent to like give talks, or yeah. some of the people in your community have gone outside to listen to talks, and the like information from outside is coming yep. back into your country. That's sort of like is the first like professionalization. That's where yeah. like and maybe success. someone local has had some success. Exactly right. So that is like you have like a hero, yeah, like somebody who's like pulling the industry, yep, and he or she is like making sure that um, that information and contacts are becoming available in the country. Now for stage four, you've got more of a um, you've got more of a like it's a common thing that people go in and out of the country, people visit. Like you've got multiple like major game developers that have come visit the country that have talked about games, and you're usually seeing sort of like a rejection of the hero. It's sort of a weird thing, but like whatever the hero did, everybody else wants to do something else, huh. okay. right? So if they did an arcade game, everybody wants to do something else. If they did like a very narrative game, everybody wants to do arcade games. Like it's just sort of like whatever the hero did, everybody wants to prove that you can do something else. Right. For me, that's the most interesting part because that's when sort of like the cultural fingerprint of a country really starts to shine. In those first stages, everybody's trying to be sustainable. Yeah. And that's the only goal because you want to prove to your parents, you want to prove to your government, you want to prove to the people around you, your family, your uh, spouse, your children, that you can do this as a living. So the main goal is make money. Right. Which means that a lot of developers at that point are trying to create games that are very similar to the games that we see in the Western world. 
Okay. And as part of that rejection in stage four, you start seeing like sort of like the cultural explosion of like, okay, we're going to make games that are native to our, our culture, native, right. native to our music, to our mythology, to our history. What are the things we can do that the rest of the world can't? Yeah. And, and often it's not even intentional. Right? Yeah. This just kind of like sneaks in. When America makes a game about war, it's about winning wars. <laughs> Poland makes De- a game about I war. definitely never looked at that perspective, but yeah. I guess that's true. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's, it's just like it's the American mythology. It's like we go do a thing, we win. Yeah, right, right? Yeah. Like we go fight a war, we bring freedom. Yeah. When Poland makes a game about war, they make this war of mine, yeah. which is a game about being a survival yeah, in we, a war. We talked to them a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. This podcast, well, and it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating. perspective yep. when you think about it because that was not an intentional. Like It's not like they set out to do that. But like the intention of like we're gonna be like an opposite viewpoint to war, just like this is what war is. Mm-hmm. War is bad. Yes, like people get hurt, so we're gonna make a game. I had, a, I had a, a speaker from Chile on my panel, and she's working on a game called Long Gone Days. Similarly, it's about like war. It's all about, also about like the language barrier, and those are not topics that she picked because she wanted to make a game about language barrier. This is just her lived experience. So that's what ends up in the game. So. In a lot of ways, that that's kind of what happens. It's not that people are rejecting the hero and thus intentionally making games. It's that they would have always made games like that if they didn't have feel the need to prove that they can partake in the Western market, right? But uh, until they prove that as a community, they will make those games because they need to prove to themselves, to their families, to uh, their country, uh, whether it's government or like you know, like just public perception that there can be a game like this. And this is true for every country. It it was true for America at the start. It was true for England. It was true for the Netherlands. It's now true for countries that haven't reached that point yet. Um, It's actually interesting, like the amount of countries that are not at like that first or second stage is like really rapidly shrinking. Like most most countries have had a hit or... Um, have had a hero that has like managed to sort of like bring start bringing knowledge back to the country. I think the largest cluster of countries that haven't done that at the moment are in, in Central Africa. Okay, uh, but pretty much everywhere else in the world, from like Chile up the world up up all the way to Canada, and from like Japan all the way to like Spain, right? Um, there is game development. Yeah, there's like a structured game development. So. Yeah. Uh, if language, distance, and money are like the the <coughs> obstacles, then I think those are. Obstacles we can overcome. Yeah. Well, well that's awesome. That's that was great to hear that that breakdown. That was wonderful. Cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, I don't know how to do this transition, but let's talk about Luftrausers then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Luftrausers is um, Luftrausers is an interesting game. It was um, it started after a sprite rendering demo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to see if we could create something that looked three D. Our artists wanted to see if we can do something that looked 3D uh, with 2D sprites if they were monochrome, if they were just one color. Okay. And what we created was this little demo in which you had wings and a plane body, and then depending on the rotation, the wings would scale up and down. Okay. Which meant that it looked 3D. Right. And then we just made a game out of it. Okay. Uh, so that's Lufthrausis. The entire idea of the game is that it's a game in which you're supposed to feel like the coolest fighter pilot ever. And... Basically, we found that the coolest thing you can do as a pilot is to, like, skim right over water. Okay. That's, like, the coolest thing you can do. Like, just objectively, there's no cooler thing you can do. Looping's pretty cool. Right. Like, a looping that ends right above the water, and now the water is splashing up behind your airplane, now you're good. Is it because you're skirting danger? Is that... I don't know. It just looks cool. This is, like, it's just awesome. It just feels good. Right. Right. Like, if 
I don't know, like I was playing Ace Combat 7 and it's another fighting game. And like, it's just true. Like if you're in a fighter plane, like flying right over the water, it's just right. kind of the coolest thing. It's like the water is splashing up behind you and like, it, sure, it's like probably dangerous. It's sort of like skillful. Right. I don't know. Like it just, it was, that was the thing. So uh, we removed all the land. We made it over water. <laughs> okay. And, um, and we just made a game about feeling cool. So, so there's a lot of tricks there to make you feel cooler. Mm-hmm. Like enemies don't actually aim at you for the first part of the game. So that oh, even really? if you're not good at it, it still feels like you're dodging all these bullets. So you'd only accidentally run into bullets. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to like kind of try to run into bullets. <laughs> okay. Um, and then like as the game goes, they start like focusing a little more. More enemies show up, and there's like a lot of mechanics that allow you to sort of like stay alive. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is like like swerving in and out of bullets, like tons of bullets flying through enemy airplanes, like, um, and then modifying that airplane as you go to um, to create interesting combinations. Um, we really like having sort of like a central thesis on both the design side and the um, business side for each project. Mm-hmm. And for Lufthouses, the thesis was kind of like, can we make a game in which you feel like the coolest fighter pilot in the world? And can we make a game in which every customization of your airplane changes the soundtrack? Okay. So every one of the 150 unique airplanes you could build had a unique soundtrack for it wow. right, through layering. Okay, of, just of by tracks. turning stuff on and turning. Yeah, stuff on. so so every every engine would have a different baseline. Every body would have a different um, melody, and every um, every wing set would have a different like I think percussion or so whatever was in that uh, was in that layer. Um, that game did really well. It was just a really fun game to work on. I have I have one major regret in that game, mm-hmm. uh, which is. Um, we, we created this combo mechanic. Mm-hmm. And like the idea was that it would force people to be aggressive. Okay. But it's kind of not a fun. It's, it just it doesn't do anything. How does, it, how does it work exactly? So so basically how it works is every time you kill an enemy, it ups your combo. Okay, sure. And then um, uh, the, that, the, the combo meter starts running out. And then unless you kill another enemy before the combo right. uh, breaks, uh, you... you you lose your combo, right? So you need to kill... You have to, you need to kill you have to keep killing. every X seconds. Yeah. And, like, in theory, that sounds very good because it's, it makes you aggressive. But it also sort of, like, doesn't work with a lot of the other mechanics. Like, the, the airplane can recover health by, like, running away, but that will always break your combo. Yep. So if you lose your combo, then you've kind of lost your high score because, like, the combo could go up pretty high. So then it's there's really no point to keep playing if you're playing for a high score. Mm. And, like... Because the, the, there's a fixed limit on, like, the, the levels? No, but because, like, the, the difficulty keeps ramping up, right? So the difficulty ramps up over time, but oh, it also right. ramps up. So you're not taking advantage of the easier levels to make Exactly. Sense, right? So you want to build up that combo really early on and then just sustain it through the hard parts because the hard parts are hard. Um, but if you lose the combo early on, you've, like, lost so much progression right. that it's just not really... You think it would be better? Do you think score is a mistake? It would be better just to be like measuring how far you can go? Yeah, I think maybe time would have been a good measure. Uh, time would have maybe been a, a better measurement than, than score. But uh, the other thing that we did is we had this system um, in which uh, every enemy had like a certain point value. Okay. And the difficulty was basically a um, control this point value that was sort of like the bank for the enemies. So the enemies would spawn mm-hmm. and then cost the bank so much money. Okay, and that's how the difficulty worked. So, we started with like weaker enemies that were cheaper. Yeah, and then over time, the enemies could afford like way more and more units. It's kind of like how the system worked in the back end. 
But sometimes it would just spawn like 11 ships and the ships were like very strong. So mm-hmm. there was no way to sustain that combo, even if you wanted. Right. We just didn't do a good enough job of like managing that combo system. And I, I honestly don't think it made the game better. So did you get to? I mean, did you get to the stun understanding after the game came out? Yeah, this was after the game came out. Like we 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 played it and it was it's good, right? It's like it's a good game, but it's like one of those hindsight design regrets where you're like, uh-huh. it would have been better if. And did you release that game just straight up? Like, is that? Yeah, I just released. It, so you uh, didn't have any phase when like people were playing. No, no, this was before. This was like right on the edge of like early access as a as a topic, right? Like 2013, 2014 or something. Right. I mean, it's kind of funny because essentially this is. I guess I mean you, you know there's probably games I'm missing that you've worked on, but like of the games kind of that I know of, like basically you know Super Cape Box, well you just released that free, yeah, and so I don't know if you guys updated it, but obviously you could have, yeah, we did. Presumably you kept working on it, right? Yeah. And like Ridiculous Fishing was based off of a Flash game, so you yeah. had the whole iteration loop right there, and of course Nuclear Throne is an early access, yep, and so this is like literally the only game that you just like, yeah, I mean there was a Flash there. game of that one as well. Oh, there was, yeah, okay. but you just controlled one airplane, okay. Uh, that one, uh, honestly, the, the funniest thing about the design is we had this Flash game, and the Flash game was fun. It was never released like r- Radical Fishing, right? It, it never had like a big release like that. Um, but what was interesting is we remember loving how the game felt. Okay. And we didn't really do anything with that Flash prototype until we decided to turn that Flash prototype into a full game, and then we made a deal with each other that we would never play the Flash game. And that instead we would try to capture like how awesome, how awesome it was. Uh-huh. And then uh, we took months to get Luftrausers as good as the Flash prototype. Okay. And then we looked at the Flash prototype, and it was nothing like what we remembered. Like we remembered all these like really cool effects and like uh-huh. these these like these little sparkles, and like they were just not there. They were all in our mind. But it's like huh. sort of like the weird nostalgia goggles sure, where you yeah. look at like an old project and you're like, oh yeah, it was really cool. And then you went around the corner and all this like cool stuff happened, and you look at it, it's like. Right. It's like a really bad animation of like a window breaking and like a book cabinet falls over and you're like, yeah, the entire building shook. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. our brain are really is really good at like filling that stuff in. Yeah. Uh, did you did you release the flash prototype? I think it was released, but not like it didn't have a big people release. No, it was like people played it and they liked it. And yeah. that was kind of it. We just like the feeling of it. I see. Okay. Um okay. So you uh so the game came out and you know you you're like, oh, this might. How did did you did you determine that on your own, or did you get a sense of that from players? No, I think that was us. I think me and JW at one point just had a conversation where we're like, yeah, there's something not entirely <laughs> something like. Not right. There's something. There's something about this game that like makes makes it hard for me to be proud of it. Mm. Right? Like, I, I like the game, but there was just a bunch of stuff in there that made us go like, eh, mm-hmm. eh, this isn't quite it. And I think that was it. It it felt like our least elegant. Solution, and, right. and we really appreciate elegance. Like, um, we're a huge fan of like being like kind of like janky or like you know like kind of broken. But we want sort of like the design core to be elegant, right? Uh, and this was just not like right. throwing a combo system on enemies because you want the player to be aggressive mm-hmm. is like the least elegant solution of doing it. And like ninety percent of cases, it's just like a band aid. It wasn't a good band aid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take. Like, we amputated a leg and then put a band-aid on it. It's like not good. Yeah. Um, still, you know, like still makes you feel like the coolest fighter part in the world. That was the thesis. So <laughs> right, we did sure. that. You did that. Were you guys were you guys doing open development at this point? No, that started with Nuclear Throne. It started okay. by accident because um, so Nuclear Throne was our next game. Yeah. After well, why don't we? Process. Why don't we then? Let's just start about talk about Nuclear Throne then. Yeah, we'll, we'll cover that. Along yeah, the way. so so it started when um, um, the Minecraft team got in touch with us because they wanted to do a charity stream. Okay, and um, 
It was a two-day game jam, and we made we made this game called Gung Gods like mm-hmm. years ago, and and the idea was that we wanted to make a um, we wanted to make a top-down roguelike. It's sort of like shooty, like top-down action game, and <coughs> we tried. We tried so hard, and every time we tried, it was so bad. Okay. It was just bad. It was not good. It was, you know, you make these levels and like keep kind of keep them like open and put enemies in them, and players would just run to the end to the exit. Okay, right? They would just like straight up run to the exit. There's the exit. That's it. There's an exit. You just run to it. Yeah. Um, so nobody was really like engaging with the shooting and it was just it, it never worked and then um, eventually we turned that world and that game into a first person shooter called Gun Gods and just dropped the idea of t- doing a top down action game uh-huh. and then for the two day game jam JW decided to revive that idea and it's it's a way he very frequently works it's like he he shelves ideas like in the back of his head and then just kind of like lets them sit until he's got more experience and then, like, comes back to them, right? Mm-hmm. And this time he decided to bring back the, the top-down game. And he's like, I, I've, I think I've got it. What I'm going to do is, instead of having an exit, the exit will appear when you've defeated all enemies. Right. And then you have to engage with the shooting mechanics. Right. And it sounded good enough, so I was like, got my blessing, like, do the thing. Um, so... He decided to do that two-day two game jam. I was traveling at that point, and he created something called Wasteland Kings. And it was the very earliest prototype of, of Nuclear Throne. And it sort of uses all of Lambia's sort of like cheats. Okay. Right? Such as? So the three things that you can recognize from a Vlambia game is our screen shake. Okay. Which is a very specific type of screen shake. It's shaky, but it shakes towards action. Mm-hmm. So instead of like being a random shake, very often if there's like an explosion just off screen, we'll shake towards that, okay. so you see the explosion better. Um, the second thing is we have a very bouncy collision. Okay. So when two things in our games ba- collide, they kind of like bounce off each other mm-hmm. uh, in sort of like a diagonal way, mm-hmm. um, and then anything that collides with something bouncing off will collide as well. So you get this like sort of like wavy collision mm-hmm. that is very flambier. I think the third thing that we do throughout all our games is trick our artistatas, which is an explosion. We'll always start with a black circle and then a white circle and then the explosion effect uh, because the black creates negative like color uh-huh. and then the white looks brighter in it. So we can actually go brighter, like to the mind's eye, we can go brighter than white okay. because the frame before it is black. Uh, I think those three things are like very flambeer. Like you can kind of like any of the games we play, like... Any collision is bouncy, like when something hits a wall, it like bounces off at the same diagonal. If enemies touch each other, they bounce off each other. Like it's just the that's the most lambert thing, and you can see it in Lufthrousers, you can see it in Super Crate Box, you can see it in but those are those are very specific game feel yeah. things. Yeah, they're like, very JW. Uh, okay, that's just like his personality in a sense. I think so. Yeah. It's it's just the style. I think because he he, he did like a hundred games a year for a while. Like he just kind of learned shortcuts, mm-hmm. and he just got very good at those shortcuts. So it's like, like it's like his fingerprints. It's those are JW's fingerprints. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think for me, you know, uh, my fingerprints in, in Vlamer games tend to be more about like the meta, the progression, like sort uh-huh. of like where the game goes, what the game says, and overall structure. Uh, JW has a magic sense for numbers. Like it's it's just sort of this thing. Uh, so anything that's related to like speed of like weapons, reload time, uh, walking speed, like how big a screen is, like he just 
I'm a programmer. He would say like, oh yeah, how, I've got like, how fast should this move? And he'd be like, 7.3. I'm like, it's a pixel game, mate. Like, it's either 7 or 8. Like, there's no there's no point three pixels. He's like, no, no, no. 7.3, because then like every 21, there'll be one extra. Every 21, it'll do 22. And I think 22 will be better across three frames. And I'm like, do I really have to like separate like our rent? Like, okay, sure, whatever. We'll do it. But you know what? What I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to program a slider, and we're just going to try six, yeah. seven, eight, and nine, and then yeah. we'll see what happens. And it would always end up being seven point three. You know, I was like I was like back then when I didn't trust the trust the sense for numbers enough. I'd go like, oh, like six too slow, eight too fast, seven too slow, seven point five, seven point two, seven point four. I'd never go to seven point three until I really had to. Yep. And it was always seven point three. It always felt fast. <laughs> so I just gave up. Yeah. I was like, okay, if he says seven point three, it's seven point three. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of my, a lot of what I do is is more related to, um, I try to keep JW in control a little, which can be like difficult, and I try to like offer alternate solutions to a lot of things he seems very like certain about, right? Um, and I'm just more concerned with like the overall structure of our games. Like I want to know how the player gets in, how the player gets out, how do they feel, what did they learn? Um, and that was just not something that JW. You know, as a prototyper, effectively ever worried about. about yeah. So, um, that that prototype came back up with Wasteland Kings, and then because that charity stream required us to live stream the development, we really liked that process. Okay. What did you like about it? It was nice to just sit there and just kind of like talk to people while working. Like programming can be very lonely. Like mm-hmm. making a game can be very like isolating at times because yep. you're just working on this thing and nobody's giving you feedback. There's no excitement. You don't like hype. It's like kind of feels fake very often mm-hmm. because it's like it just makes you nervous. Like people are hyping up this game. You're like, oh, actually, we don't have that. It's, like, <laughs> it's just kind of terrifying. Yep. Like this is like the most controlled hype we've ever seen because it's like people are literally watching us make the game. So you're like demystifying it. Yeah, and like I, I, I felt like from my end, I think a lot of issues with the way developers and our audiences communicate are basically just like us trying to pretend we know what we're doing. Like as industry, we can pretty certainly say we don't. Yeah. Right? Like it's every game is sort of like a question mark of like, okay, is this gonna work? Like we're like at the heart of our industry is the idea of iteration, mm-hmm. which is like. Effect like efficiently failing. Yeah, like that's that's like our core like mantra is like fail efficiently. Yep. Um, and then we just keep going out with like, oh yeah, no, this is going to be the greatest game ever. Like, yep, we have some of the best designers in the world working on this level. Yeah, we have some good choke points. It's going to be great. Um, you're going to play with like six of your friends, and it's like the marketing spiel for our games was so far removed from the reality of development. Yep. That I think we taught an entire generation of gamers that we know what we're doing. And we're not. And, like, especially with now with, like, games as a service as a thing, like, you're seeing it bite us really hard because we're like, oh, yeah, no, we, we're just experimenting. And people are like, why are you experimenting? <laughs> you're a game designer. You should know what you're doing. You're a professional. Know what you're designing. It's like, nobody has ever designed something like this. Like, yeah. Um, well, it's a humility is a kind of, like, important trait for game design. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's one a lot of us had to learn. <laughs> um, so in Nuclear Throne, like for me, the idea of like actually talking to people while developing a game and just showing them yeah. it sounded so much easier for me, right? Like as as a as our community manager, just being like, okay, well, the, we don't have this thing yet. It's going to take us two more weeks because, as you can see, we have to program this. Right. And it's like the, the moments the moments with a community were fascinating because we program a new weapon and we shoot the bullets for the first time and it would go through a wall. Right. We were going, hey, 
it's broken. It went through the wall. We're like, yeah, we, we didn't program collision yet. And they're like, you have to program that? <laughs> like, right, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, we have to program that. They're like, no wonder games take two years to make. And we're like, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Um, and moments like that were, were super cool. And then we released the game in early access. Then we started to like earn money mm-hmm. doing those streams as well. So we did that for a little bit longer than we should have. Probably. Earning money during the stream. How does that work? Exactly. So like, you remember that I said that in most of our games we like to have a business thesis yes. and a design thesis? Right. So for this game, my business thesis was that if people were watching our live stream on Twitch, they would also buy the game on Twitch. So yeah, the live stream is like literally while you're programming. Yeah. So okay. people were watching us program, and we we had a we we had a partner account, which means you could subscribe to our channel. Okay. So we had changed the subscription button, and they they had an API. So it made so that if you subscribe to our channel, it would dispense a Steam key to you. Okay. So you could buy Nuclear Throne by subscribing to our channel for twelve ninety nine, which is the same price as on Steam, and we made us effectively the first game that was sold on Twitch. Right. Which is Twitch had no idea we were doing it. <laughs> uh, they were very unhappy about it because we were like, we started talking about it somewhere. Yeah, we were like selling our game through Twitch, and then like a day later, I got a I got a phone call from uh, from one of the Twitch PR folks, and they're like, "Are you selling your game through Twitch?" We're like, "Yeah, like we're using the subscribe button." They're like. Can you stop saying you're selling the game through Twitch and just say, like, we've done a hack that allows people... Because we have, like, a hundred press people asking us whether we're going to start a store <laughs> or something. Right. And I'm like, oh, I'm very sorry. I'll, yeah. I'll change the wording. Their subscriptions are, like, one-time... There you have, like, one-time... Only so you can set them. Uh, you can choose okay. between a monthly, which a lot of streamers use, or a one-time subscription, which was more useful for us. Okay. Uh, so we were the first game ever sold on Twitch. And... Uh, it was sort of like the central thesis. I believe that if people were watching people play on Twitch or be watching people develop on Twitch, that they would also buy a game on Twitch. Yeah. And I wasn't wrong. So it was cool. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun project. Have other people tried that? I mean, I yeah, actually, Twitch done. got in touch with us like a year later. They're like, we're starting a store. Well, and yeah, they started a store. They actually like, shut it down again, by the way. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Stores are tough, but I mean, like, they are. I mean, I know there's, I've seen some people who do open development. Yeah. And it seems like it's usually just kind of like, I don't, it doesn't seem like they're expecting to sell a bunch of copies of the game at that point. Or sometimes they're often for games that aren't even out yet. So Yeah, I think I think it's a good way of building hype that is like containable. Yeah. Right? Because you can literally just point at the stream and be like, This is this is what it is. I think there's specific types of games that are way better like For that? For that. Like okay. um sort of like the game that is now the most popular or the most risk averse is like the infinitely replayable, procedurally generated type of game. Mm-hmm. Or, or like online multiplayer games that uh, are less dependent on content and more on like having enough players. Yep, those games do very well in open development. Uh, okay. They're very easy to communicate about when when you're developing them. Um, they have a, they have a high chance of like creating large audiences on Twitch because uh, people are interested in them, or there's something about that that those mechanics. Because there. so we live in a weird time where there's a lot of pressure in the games industry, right? Like we have the pressure of people expect games to be cheap. Yes, so we have race to the bottom. And even though the bundle culture has kind of like faded, mm-hmm. um, the idea that games should be cheap has not faded. So people expect any $60 game to be $15 in like less than two to three months. Yeah. And otherwise, it doesn't feel right. And that's getting, um, that's getting worse now with free-to-play and games as a service becoming a model. Right? Then on the other side, one of the biggest pressures on our industry is actually Twitch, uh-huh. uh, which has created a marketing channel that is way more effective than traditional press in many ways right. uh, because it feels more personal. And 
a lot of games companies have started to realize that. So now there's like million dollar deals going around this Twitch space, uh, space because nobody expects them to be objective. Uh-huh. Unlike with press, where people expect objective. Like yeah, with influencers, people expect them to just do whatever. Yeah. Um, but influencers are just just like us. They're business people. Right. So for them, playing the games that people will watch is best. Yes. Right. And the games that people will watch are usually games that they can see somebody learn. Yeah. So games like Binding of Isaac, games like Minecraft, games like Fortnite, games like that people can be very good in, express skill in, but that you can also infinitely replay. Mm-hmm. So a single playthrough narrative game has way less potential on Twitch because you can only play it through it once. And nobody's going to watch somebody play the same game twice. Sure. They'll watch somebody play 100 games of Fortnite. They won't watch them play, like, Gone Home twice. Right. right? So... Uh, that specific type of game does really well. And then the third one is that we live in a strange time in which making single-player experiences is often less and less sustainable, mm-hmm. right? Because there's only one-time sales or, like, specific sales points where all repetitive games are uh, games that people can, like, keep spending money on. Yeah. So all that together creates this weird shift towards games as a service, yeah. right? And it's this, this shift towards... Games should be infinite. They should be infinitely replayable. They should be. Uh, they should have multiple points of sale instead of just like sale at the start, sale at the end. Um, the DLC model has kind of failed us. The microtransaction model is failing us. Like the sixty dollar model has failed us. So kind of like every model that we have in our industry has failed us as like a sustainable like source of of business. I think all that together just creates this, this really weird uh, moment in time right now where. We don't really know what forward is, mm-hmm. but we do know that there's one specific type of game that has a higher chance of not wrecking our studio. Sure. Which yeah. is why you're seeing all the like games as a service, multiplayer shooters, because multiplayer is infinite content. Yeah. Right. And um, roguelikes are infinite content. Yeah. So multiplayer is tough. I mean, but there's, I don't know, when I, I usually think of it, like games are multiplayer focused, like, you know, there's this, there's this gap, right? Like ten of them are enormous, yeah. And then there's this vast wasteland of, of like games that just can't sustain a community. Yep. And so, yeah, single player games aren't going to their their ceiling isn't going to be as, as high, but their their floor is also not going to be as low. Yeah. Assuming you make like a quality product. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the thing. Like, that should be enough. You would right. think, right? Yeah. But it just isn't. Like, the budgets have gone so out of hand compared to, like, what people expect. Like, the quality that people want for, like, $15. Sure. It's not It's not sustainable right now. And, like, I wish it was. Like, I genuinely wish it was because I would love $15 games, if even just for my family in Egypt, so they could afford them, sure. right? But um, what we are building now, it doesn't, it doesn't track with what people are paying for it. It doesn't track with what people are, what we are asking for it. And... Um, well, that's going to be a bit, that's going to keep being a problem. The bigger of a history-driven industry this is, yeah, which is really just trackable to the number of people playing, right? Yep. Because you have the bigger the game's audience is, you know, like a game that could have been profitable at forty dollars ten years ago could have been profitable at twenty dollars five years ago could yep. now be profitable at ten dollars this year, yeah, because there's just that many more people to buy it, yeah, and that. You know that price fall. Well, I mean, kind of I'm making your point again, but like that dropping price, it just makes it harder for anyone who's not doesn't have a huge hit. Yep. So, so I mean, all that together is is creating this pressure. And then on top of that, because these games are infinitely replayable or roguelikes, people are buying 
fewer games that they're playing for longer time. Right. Right. So people play a Fortnite for like two thousand, three thousand hours, but then don't buy any other games yeah. because they're playing Fortnite or they're playing League or they're playing Dota or they're playing Apex or PUBG or. Right. Um, so all that together creates creates this circumstance in which single player games are mostly like first party. Yeah. Like if you want like your your single player tempo game, they're used to sell consoles. Right. They're used to like. <laughs> Sell PlayStation and Xbox. Yeah, you get like a God of War or a Spider-Man, which is effectively second party. Yeah. Um, I hope for like a resurrection of single-player games. Like, I'm a firm believer that our industry is cyclical, Mm -hmm. right? So that after this, we'll see a pushback on this online stuff because people want like more bespoke experiences. So do you Uh, think you think nuclear? I mean, nuclear throwing is part of this because it's playable. It's not multiplayer. Yeah, that was us just looking at the market and being like, like, "Well, that's what." Yeah. So for for our future, what we actually have in mind. So my business thesis now for our new project um, is that people are actually very okay with having smaller games. Mm -hmm. It's just they need to be really small. Okay. So people play Dota, they play Fortnite, they play League, but then between those games, they want to play like something quick. Yeah. Right, like when they're queuing in league, when they're like uh, not not feeling like Dota, when they're uh, they just got wrecked in Fortnite as like the first player to be out. Like they want to play something else real quick, and I think there's a space there that didn't exist before for like very small, interesting arcade experiences. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna try and make very small, like super crate box esque games, and we're gonna see if there's a way we can get people to <coughs> well. <coughs> We're gonna see if there's a way. Um, we're gonna see if there's a way to get people interested in that type of game again, because right. the type of game kind of went away. Like in the indie in the indie scene, we are equally doing like an arms race in graphics because the people that have money mm-hmm. can spend money on like standing out through just pure graphical power and and like auditory experience. Um, it's hard to compete with that, even as Flambeer. Like we don't want to compete with that. That's not what we're here for. Um, so we're just going to try and go the opposite direction. See if there's a market there. Like right. See if there's an, an audience there. I I like to believe so. Right. And I like those games. I would play them. So okay. I mean, I mean, a lot of your games are somewhat short. So, yeah. So you're saying you want to make <laughs> games even shorter? We like we like to call them hard, not short. Sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, they are they are short. Yeah, short. Like Super Great Box. It was like 20 seconds. Now you're dead. Yeah, short session. Yeah. Right. yeah. So we, we want to do that. Ultra Bugs, like, it's it's basically Space Invaders, um, sort of like a top-down arena Space Invaders game, where every enemy you kill splits into multiple enemies. Okay. So it starts with nothing on the field, just one enemy. And then the more enemies you destroy, the more enemies spawn. And you're basically sort of like orchestrating your own device right. in that game. Like, okay. there's no way to win. Uh, there's just scores to get. There's yeah. bosses that will spawn, and those will unlock better ships or different ships. And every ship is sort of its own game mode in the way it shoots. Right. Um, and that's it. Like, there's no, like, big story. There's no, like, narrative arc. It's just, like, here's a small, interesting thing. Go play it. Right. And we're just going to charge, like, five-ish dollars for it. Right. Five, six dollars. And then done. Right. Like, and then see if that goes. Like, if, if the investment in the game is low, then the amount of money it needs to make to be sustainable is low. And maybe that's just kind of what we need right now. Sure. Like, people to make smaller things, not bigger things. Yeah. Um, plus I think if, if we can create that market uh, or if we can emphasize that market uh, there's a lot of room for like other work to exist in the $5 space that sure. right now doesn't have a chance because they're competing with like a super giant a capybara yeah. Mike Bethel well as like a strategy game developer I was like really excited by this would have been a number of years ago but like 
six or seven years ago, just starting to see games come out like, I don't know, like Adam Zombie Smasher or something. Yeah. It was like at a scale that was like, that it was on a different scale from, you know, a typical, you know, a typical strategy game has to either be like an RTS or it's going to be a long form, you know, 10, 20 hour simulation or a 4X game or whatever. And like, you know, it was it was just like, you know, you couldn't really sell a game like, oh, this game's like two and a half hours and maybe even just you're going to play it once, right? Like, you know, like that scope just kind of like didn't exist. Um, and so it's it's nice to see the, you know, the, the potential diversity in the market where you can you can sell at all different levels because if, functionally speaking, if that's not true, then there's like games that could be made that don't exist, yeah. right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think maybe... Maybe this like fragmentation we're seeing in the store space is mm-hmm. going to be very good for us um, yeah. as an industry. Like seeing the Epic Games store sort of like take a shot at Valve, but also seeing HIO sort of like spawn outside of that whole market. Like, yeah. I think having more stores will be good for us. I mean, there's obviously going to be growing pains. Just sure. like everybody likes having one launcher. Yep, that just works. But like adding Nintendo to the PlayStation Microsoft mix has been really good for indies in general. Yes. Right? Like just having a third player yeah. uh, makes a difference. And I think having a second player in the PC market is going to make a difference. And then having... Um, I mean, it's just doing fine for how big it is. But uh, potentially having an extra person, an extra competitor in the in the experimental space would also not be bad. So Yeah, that makes sense. So I bet that maybe I want to ask a, a quick question about like kind of open development just because I'm just kind of curious. It's something I've kind of thought about doing a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I've always been like, man, it would be, be kind of fun, but it also feels like it might be really super boring for people. <laughs> we <laughs> thought that, but like honestly, people loved it. Yeah, we were surprised by the things they loved. We would always think like, oh, because like we're just like showing a face programming for a few hours. But like maybe it's the development style. Like mm-hmm. obviously, a lot of Nuclear Throne's development was like creating quick content. Like okay, like a laser weapon that shoots three bullets and right. they're spreading. Yeah, like. People like seeing that because it's like, okay, is this going to work? Is it not going to work? And like, are there going to be bugs? And like, just sort of like our like uh, excitement if something worked, but also like our tiredness if something didn't work. Like yeah, it, yeah. it had like a sort of com- sort of comedic beat to it. So there's like a story arc within. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like getting a thing working, adding a new character, like creating a new area. Like people were interested in being part of that. I do think, like, I mean, if RTSs are, it's such a strange genre to design for because a lot of RTS only comes together in, like, the balancing phase, right? Right. Um, I mean, we, so we streamed ourselves, when we made Offworld, uh, we streamed ourselves, like, like at lunch every day for, for people to watch. Yeah. So, and they would see us, um, so we didn't really show ourselves uh, coding, but what they would see is we would play a match. And someone would lose, and then we'd all get together in like my office and mm-hmm. we'd debate, you know, like what should change. Like, oh, we shouldn't do this. Like, I can't believe you beat me with this stupid thing, or like, yeah. you know, mutinies are totally unfair, or whatever. Yeah. And you know, we'd argue back and forth, and so on and so forth. And then the next day, you know, it would look somewhat different. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think every every genre has its own format. Yeah, like, that, that, but that's very smart because if RTS comes together in the balancing phase, like right. having those balancing discussions in the front. Is sort of like the valuable content of the of the development. Like we would stream twice a week, and we would sort of like Monday would be bug fixing, Tuesday would be stream, Wednesday would be like sort of like feature creation, yeah. content creation. Thursday would be stream, and then Friday would be wrap up. Right. So you you had a cadence for like the the streams being sort of the most visible. Interesting yeah. Parts and, and we would keep the interesting content for that. Right. So yeah. we would make sure that 
if we were adding new weapons or adding new enemies, we would keep that for Tuesday or Thursday. And then just not do those on the other days because those were like the boring work. Right. But like every genre, like you said, every genre has like its interesting moments. It's just for a roguelike, it starts very early on in development. Right. And I think for an RTS, it starts a little later when the framework is in place. I do feel like open development, like community management in general right now, is just such a critical subject. Mm-hmm. I think as indies, we have to be a little better at letting our community handle part of that, like delegating it to Twitch streamers or community members, uh, because I think there's a lot of risk in the authority of your voice as a developer. Okay. Like if you suggest there might be multiplayer, it'll get taken as like there's absolutely eight player online multiplayer, right? Like that's just it's, it's just, just a right. given. You just said that and he sneezed it one day. Yeah, like one day, like it's just like it's, <laughs> in the background there was the number eight on the like on the whiteboard and like eight p. Play. Yeah, so it's like that kind of thing where it's like okay, like. We need to get better at realizing that our voice has a lot of authority, but yeah. we can delegate other people to have conversations like that. Have you stepped back then a little bit? Like, so yeah, for for our new games, we're we're still so for Ultra we're not doing open development uh, because it's basically done. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're looking at uh, maybe opportunities to do like streams every now and then. Right. Uh, I've I've gone a lot more open personally as a developer so I do uh, a live stream I do a, a show on Twitch called Call Me Ismail okay. and it's just a call in radio show oh, so right. I'll just okay. sit for like 3-4 hours and just let developers call me take 15 minute phone calls do that for a few hours like there's people from all How over often the world do you do that? like uh, once twice a month okay. like it kind of depends on my travel schedule it's usually a jet lag fix for me it's a very okay. good jet lag fix we should try to call Call we Me Ismail we tried yeah. to stream a couple of times yeah, yeah. Well. it's fun um, so that's fun and I've started to play games like on live streams and just like kind of talking through like what I see and what I feel and what I think the designers were trying to do what the sure. developers were trying to do that's been really fun so Flambeer's development is sort of like quieted down a little um, at its peak like how many people were watching you code and like oh a lot we, we've had really busy streams we've had like thousands like we had like thousand plus people at, at times like live so you watching. just couldn't even follow the chat or like yeah well our chat is I mean it was a lot of memes so sure. no, we couldn't we couldn't follow <laughs> chat sometimes yeah. but like yeah sometimes it got really big like especially close to launch but mm-hmm. usually it was like 100 200 people and you know what that's actually kind of perfect sure. like you don't want bigger than that yep. like it's a, it's a close knit tight community that feels like a close knit tight community and that's kind of what you want early on yep. at some point when we really needed to pivot because it also backfired a number of times when we uh, were getting a lot of feedback from this tight knit community but they were all experts at the game so when they had like any feedback about difficulty yep, or like sure. pace we, we misread that a few times and yeah. made the game way too hard and then realized that our onboarding had just like dropped like how did, no, you, how did you realize that uh, we got no new players in the forums oh wow our you forums just, just stopped like yeah no there's just nobody joined because people would play the game and go like yeah this is not for me and then just not talk about it right sure like, nobody plays a game for one round realizes it's not for them and then goes to the forums it's an interesting secondary place to look for that like a lot yeah. of companies would like just be measuring the metrics of that like yeah well, we didn't really have metrics yeah yeah so, right? so. watch your forums yep yeah, we were just like, why is nobody new joining the game? We realized that the community had been complaining about level one being too easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that every time they had to play like the boring easy part. So okay, we're gonna it's gonna make it a little harder. Gonna make it a little harder until eventually just nobody new could play the game anymore. Yeah, I'm almost afraid of that for games where that I'm updating it constantly that eventually I'll like <laughs> lose like, like, lose everybody. Yeah, well, just like you know, like, I, the game was really good a year ago, and somehow I've like screwed it up because <laughs> yeah. I've been listening to the wrong people now and like it's just hard to know but the good thing is like if the, like the wrong people is still like people 
Right? Sure. Like yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if there's a community that can form around the game in being in a certain state, mm-hmm. then there's more people like that. Yeah. Well, the, the generally the, the way I'd like to think of it is everyone that comes to you, there's like they, they have a valid point they're going to make, and sometimes sometimes it's not appropriate for your game, but other times you can find ways to address what they want without interfering with what other people with what other people want. Like, Very often, that's the solution, yeah. right? Like, how can I give you X without taking away Y? Yeah. And very often they are indeed X and Y. Like it's very rare that it's directly. Yeah, that that they're mutually exclusive. It's yeah. just sometimes it takes a little like finagling yeah. or like re- like we had a we had a fun one with Nuclear Throne where um, we had a boss fight that would uh, we had a we had a way that you could loop the game. So if you beat the final boss, you would like loop the game. And a lot of people just wanted an ending to the game, but a lot of people also wanted to keep that looping thing. Mm-hmm. And we just hadn't made a final boss. So for the final boss, we designed a final boss that if you beat them in a specific way, you would loop. But if you didn't know that, it, it wouldn't. Right. Uh, and that was just like, a, it was an interesting way of solving it because like people that didn't know about this secret mechanic, right. which is like get to the ending, beat the game and be happy. And then get like a hint that you could do that. Right. And people that knew about it, like now both, could do what they wanted, but also felt cool because they knew the secret thing that other develop- that other gamers didn't know yet, so they right. could teach them about it. And that I just created a solution that was good for everybody. Uh, well, at the start, it was a huge fight in our community. Like, should there be a boss or not? Right. Usually, there's a solution. Yeah. It just takes a little massaging, like messaging. Yeah. I, I think there's some sort of thing in the brain that sometimes naturally puts designers in the position where they feel like they're making a choice. Like they, they have to be continually making these choices between these diametrically opposed sides. Yeah. Like, you know, they they kinda of feel like like, well I'm in the middle and I'm gonna have to, you know, make you know, but like there's almost always like you know, it's not just like there's a way out, but there's like probably something better up above you. Yeah. I think for tough choices it's always good to try and find like five ways to write down the problems in different ways. Right. It's like a way that I've like really like learned to look at complex choices and uh with with some of the work I'm, I'm doing now with like diversity work, like very often things are diametrically opposed, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, um, trying to deal with um, uh, gender non-binary people yeah. in English, you just say they, yeah. but like try doing that in French where yeah. like, you know, your, your nouns get uh, conjugated based on like gender yes, um, or Spanish or Portuguese or yep. Russian or Arabic or, you know, all these other languages. And like, you kind of have to make a choice about how you deal with that. And those are opposite sure. choices. You can do one or the other. Yeah. Uh, there's no solution. But like, I feel like rewriting that choice is still important. So instead of asking, like, do we choose to like support a language or misgender a person? It's like, okay, where's the agency in this choice? Mm-hmm. That's actually a really more interesting question. Like, do I make that decision or should the person who is affected by this make that decision, right? And like just like rewriting a question five or six times from like different perspectives. Okay, this question with me as the decision maker. Okay, now let's rewrite the question with somebody else as a decision maker. Now let's see, let's make a question about who is the decision maker. And like just kind of like go through it that way. Yeah. Often like you find solutions that you hadn't even thought about or like hadn't even considered. So like, you know how you'd have a rubber ducky with programming sometimes? <laughs> like just if you're stuck with a bug and you yeah. just needed to explain it to somebody and there's nobody there and you just have like the rubber duck debugging. Right. You can rubber duck design as well. Yeah. Sit down, write the question down a few different ways, and just pretend the duck is asking. Right. Yeah, it helps. <laughs> Sometimes it helps. Cool. Um, okay. Well, um, one thing I like to ask, kind of at the end, at the end of the interview, is mm-hmm. I like to ask people, you know, looking back at you know, the games you've made, why have you chosen to like dedicate your career to making games? Cool. Um, I think I didn't choose. 
Uh, I think it just happened. Um, everything, a lot of who I am and how I think just just connects really well with games. I think for me, the bigger choice is: do I focus on making games or helping other people make games? Mm-hmm. I think that that was my big choice. It was never about am I going to make games. It okay. was. Um, is it more important that I make one game, or is it more important that I can help a hundred people make a hundred games? Do you? This may be weird. I don't know if how this will come across to you, but do you think part of your early career was helping JW to make games? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it was helping JW, like was helping funneling JW's like inherent like design sort of like need into something constructive instead right. of uh, throwaway. Yeah, um, and I think before that as well, like obviously I worked as like sort of a sport role at, at Star Wraith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before that, like most of the stuff I was making, I wanted to make like teams and like mm-hmm. help other people make games. Like I've always been somebody who likes to help. Yeah. Because um, I know I'm capable of doing a lot of cool stuff, but I find it more fun to see other people do that, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I kind of know I can. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's fine. That's not interesting to me. Um, so I think for me, like the choice to dedicate a lot of what I do to like diversity and inclusivity and like emergent territories, that was my bigger choice because mm-hmm. I had a very obvious, like I had a very obvious choice to just go into like, let's make games. Right. Uh, which is what I've wanted to do since I was young. But, um, I realized I got put in this really weird position mm-hmm. by my travel and, and by my specific like person and being bicultural and like sort of standing on like a crossroads of, um, the half and half knots in our industry. Um, and it just, it seemed like a waste to not do that. Like, we carry a very old torch, right? Like, the torch of play is, like, thousands of years old. And we carry it now in, in this medium of ours, this, this video games medium. And I feel like we kind of owe it to this torch, to this to this idea of, like, this global medium that we make sure that we get it right. Yep. So I've gotten to the point where, for me, being in the games industry is about... I want, I want, when I, when we pass this torch on, right, because we will, like you and I both, like all, all of us in this room, um, we will pass on this torch and like the industry will be in a certain state and it will be because of us and the generations before us, they've made choices. Some of them were good. Some of them were bad. Some of them were thoughtful. Some of them were thoughtless. Some of them just kind of happened. Some of them were like intentional decisions and we're going to do the same and we're going to get some things right and we're going to get some things wrong. And when we pass on this torch, I want this industry to be global. Like, that's my one dream. I want this industry to be for everybody. I want this to be like photography. And I know a lot of people think of it as a nightmare, but I want it to be like a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want game creation to be a thing where you can pick up a phone and point it at somebody. And then you click a photo and like the algorithm is making it to a beautiful portrait. Mm-hmm. I want game development to be that because if game development is that, it doesn't mean you don't have good photographers anymore. Right. Like even with like the amazing cameras we have nowadays, like a good photographer will make a good photo. And like a bad photographer will sometimes make a good photo. Right. And if games can be that, where everybody in the world can make a game for like somebody's birthday or like as a gift to like a friend or uh, just to express like a thing they're stuck with, please, like let's do that. And like let's build this medium instead of in, into something that is accessible and inclusive and available to everybody. And then pass on the torch. I want to see what the kids do nowadays, right? Like, yeah. they grew up never knowing a world without indie games. Mm-hmm. Right? This was not a question to them. Can yep. you make an indie game? Like, yes, you can make an indie game. Yes, you can make a game with two people. Like, how exciting is that? Yeah. They've never gone out without an iPad, without always connected internet. With like, 
What if the entire world wakes up every day knowing we can make games? Right. I want to see that world. So that's what I'm going to try and do. Cool. All right. Let's. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, cool. Thank you for the interview. That, that yeah. went great. Good. Good. Good place to stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool.